he cut his wife's head off and drove about no. in a mini for like, say, like two months. He was the Queen's cousin. And stabbed a samurai sword in him and opened him up and like, literally right opened it. The guy was a psychopath. He used to go to a pub and open people up for fun. You know, he was, a, he was a, no one wanted to be around him. They, they called him the plump. So as he was coming in, my dad went running over. He had like his, his suit on. And the geezer's come up with a big knife. And I remember my dad just went, crash, one right hand. And my dad hit him. His face, it looked like short. It was like something out of a cartoon. His face went all distorted. And it was like, my dad hit him and took the knife off him and it rammed it straight in his shoulder. Literally, it pierced him to like where the carpet was. Yeah. I think they, I think when they come out, they, they couldn't get him out because the carpet was like, the knife was so wedged in. You know, like felt wallpaper. They had that in the limelight VIP bit, but it was blood all up the walls. I think I remember Peter Bleaks, he's saying, if the roof would have fallen in that night, 90% of South London's underworld would have been gone. They'd normally leave someone dead in the toilets or, or the half dead. They were like really evil people. But uh, I loved it. I was like a kid, like a sponge, just soaking up all this. I was like, no. I had to see psychologists, no judge or court would listen to my story because they said what went on in that party wasn't of a normal human being. When I smashed it into him, it burst his bowel. So what happened was, apparently he died three times on the operating table because he was, he was, because where he'd been stabbed, he didn't realise for like two or three hours, his like excrement was leaking out of his bowel. So he, so they opened him up from his groin up to oh. his neck. He'd had like 400 stitches. They used to have bowls of like probably four or five ounces with playing cards stuck in them. And everyone would just like take a little bit and off, go off to the toilet and have a, and all the women are walking about in shoulder pads like sung out of Dallas. And all the guys <laughs> have got like, like, like sung out of Miami Vice. For me, when I was 19 doing it, they was just like the white doves of 91. And for me, when I had that first half of dub, I was like, I never danced in my life and I had my hands on the, the banisters in limelight in the church. And next thing I my legs, their own little thing. And I'm thinking, fucking hell, I saw someone who I, Hate at school and I'm like, oh, what the hell are you going? Come and have a drink, come and have a drink. And this to me was like, this was the best thing that had ever happened in my life. I think about things, what my mum told me, and I know they're looking up over me, and I do want to do the best of my life now. He had like a, a, a shield around him, it was like an aura. And I, as a kid, I was like, no, I love this. It's I'm a problem solver, son. I said, what do you mean? He went, well, if someone's got a problem, I'll solve it. <laughs> he didn't really like the company of other gangsters. He chose to drink with the window cleaner or the street. And I said, why do you drink with those old mugs? And he goes, son, they're not mugs. They go to work from nine to five. They look after their family and they're really decent people. He said, gangsters won't give you nothing. They just take off your take off. They're leeches. He said, see that guy with the window cleaner, you mug off, who the poor Harry the window cleaner. He said, he gave me a bit of work and I earned a million pounds. He said, someone look, whatever it was, whatever it was. I thought I could just be 19 and be like turning to my dad. Mm -hmm. And real life isn't like that. <laughs> Many of you have seen Jimmy Tippett go viral on TikTok. He's been on YouTube on Liquid Bullet. Jen's mate Ben's had him on on Enquirer 1.0. Credit him. We'll put a link in the description box to all this good stuff. And loads of people have been trying to get Jimmy on, so we are honoured. He's got such an amazing story. He is a high-powered speaker. I mean, people come in and they've got no energy or they give us short answers. We just like to sit here mesmerised by people like Jimmy. So huge thank you for coming on, man. <laughs> yeah, That's okay, you. my pleasure. You said that you had an uncle who was a cop killer. Yeah, Freddie Saul. He was uh, Britain's most wanted man. In 1971, in August, he went on to an armed robbery in Blackpool with some other guys. And they, it was on a jewellers. But the jewel, it went wrong. Someone pressed the, the alarm buzzer. There was smoke coming out. 
Fred ended up running down an alley, but a chief superintendent Richardson, uh, a high-ranking police officer in Blackpool, chased after Fred. Fred spun round, but the guy sort of jumped onto the gun and Fred pulled the trigger. It was like an air... It just it went and that was Fred's life over. He was in on the, officially on the run. He was Britain's most wanted man for six weeks until he was caught. So I was born in uh, the 9th of September, 1971. So Fred was still at large. So where I was born in Lewisham Hospital, there was a little place called Ladywell where my nan lived. So the police was went to the hospital. They went to my nan's address. So obviously it took the dairy off of my, as my mum said, it took the dairy right off your birth, Jim, because you was, everyone was going to be talking about her baby son being born to my dad. And it was like, everyone was, Fred was in the papers every single day being Britain's most wanted man. So my mum said, it took the dairy right off your fucking birth. So no, yeah. So that was uh, my story sort of uh, into the underworld. And obviously with my dad who being who he was. Because we've got a lot of viewers in America then. What's your definition of the London underworld? The London underworld, I said, well, everyone says, don't they, Sean, it's, it was like the Ronnie and Reggie of the, the gangland 60s and the Richardsons, who were all family, who, who were and are still are the Richardsons, who's, Eddie Richardson, who's alive. They're all family friends. But no, it was, I think it was just the 60s. It was like, it was like the American, so pro- prohibition years, wasn't it? It was, it was all doled up like in suits with, with uh, George Raft coming over. James, it was a James Cat. My dad had- Pinky rings. Yeah, but that's what I said. My dad had a spieler in Lucian up in a- Near, uh, where was it? Uh, it was above the kebab house, just by the bowling alley. I can't think of the hill where, oh, Belmont Hill it was, going towards Blackheath. And as a kid, I would go up there and you had all the people sort of, like you had the Smiths, the Haywards, Ronnie Easterbrook, do you remember him? He was a guy who blew himself out with Semtex out of the prison van. Oh, he was on a armed robbery in 1987. They'd done a robbery and it was, there's a thing on YouTube, really interesting. It's called Operation Turkey. And it's where the police are following a group of armed robbers. And it's like a, a live documentary as they're doing it. And you see him filming it. And then Ronnie has a shootout. Tony Ash got shot dead. He had a wig on. And he got shot dead. And you see him on the floor with a wig on the floor. And Ronnie was sh- got shot by the police uh, marksman. And he was still shooting, shooting back at the copper. But Ronnie got a natural life sentence and fought it up until the day he died, which was around 2008, 2010, I believe. And he was only two sixties. He refused to accept, he, he, was, he said he was a political prisoner. He spent most of those years as a AAA cat. Wow. But he wow. got someone in the IRA when he was in Brixton to smuggle some Semtex in. And he, what he'd done is he put it inside the van, but what he'd done, he put his court papers and he ended up losing two fingers because instead of going outwards, it went inwards. So the explosion went inwards, he'd done it wrong, but he had it smuggled in in some Kraft Dairy Lee cheese because he was allowed certain food items in, when they was on remand in wow. Brixton. So this is back, back in the day. But no, I grew up with all these sort of people, like with Freddie, we used to go on holiday with Freddie Foreman. When, when did you become aware? Because you said you were born in 72. 71. 71. So when did you like become aware that all this was going on around I you? I think, Joe, you know, it was. It wasn't, it was, as a kid, I always knew I was different because we'd, we would go out. My dad never used to work. He'd have illegal gambling clubs like Spielers. And all my dad's friends were like, you'd always see him in a newspaper or they'd come round and they was all like, all big gold Rolexes, pinky rings. And my dad's friends were like, he had a guy, a scouser called Norman Johnson. And he was like one of my dad's closest friends. And this guy was, I would say, one of my, one of, one of my favourite of my dad's friends because he had an affair with the Princess of Oman. And he, he, she ran away with him in 1979 with 10 million pounds in suitcases. What? The news of the world blew the story right up. And he wrote a book called Black Eyes and Blue Blood. It's out. It's, it's by Norman Johnson. He died in 2012. But Norman had like the big mansion in Stafford. He had the big gold Rolex, the big eight carat diamond, all the Rottweilers, changed his cars <laughs> like he changed his underwear. And he lived life like, it was in Marbella, New York. And he actually worked with Russell Buffalino, 
who the film The Irishman was based on. Holy shit. So he was, growing up as a kid, I knew that, I thought, wow, this is, my dad's friends would go in the pub and everyone would sort of move away from them. They would stood at the bar and, and they would go, I'll oh, get, and they had like a never ending supply of 50 pound notes. It would, you'd see them go to the bar, they'd keep the change and you'd see them all like running around. But every, every whenever they sort of pulled the money out, everyone would appear and, and everyone else would be stood there like waiting around like it falls, I'd used to say. But I knew that they were different. And it was like, I used to love being with my dad. He had like, if he walked in, Sean, he was like, he was mesmerising. He, he was like, he had these still eyes, but he, he had flat nose, but very good looking man. And he was just, he would just walk in, he was immaculately dressed, but he would treat everyone with respect. But everyone, you, he had like a, a, a shield around him. It was like an aura. <laughs> and I, as a kid, I was like, fucking hell, I love this. And even my mum and dad's friends, like Donald Sutherland, the Hollywood actor, and like they would come over for, and we'd go for dinner in Langham's. But everyone, he would be like in awe of my dad. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, you're a big star. And Kiefer was like a lot younger at the time. He'd just done Stand, Stand By Me, which was a really great film. And it was like, they was like in awe of my dad. And I thought, fucking hell, these are like famous people. Why are they like that? But whenever we was out, everyone was always in awe of my dad. And I used to say to my dad, dad, what do you do for a living? And he'd go like, because the people at school ask what you do for a living. He'd say, I'm a problem solver, son. I said, what do you mean? He went, well, if someone's got a problem, I'll solve it. And I said, well, what do you mean? He went, well, say, look, someone comes to me, son, they're having problems with like, say, like, travellers one day this woman they'd been terrorised by these travellers for years and they'd been take, trying to nick their land and my dad went down there went into their pub on his own and uh, he, he ended up doing what he had to do and this woman wrote me a letter saying we've been to the police we've been to the courts we've tried to hire people we've got employed you come down in one day and solve it we are so indebted to you but my dad wouldn't take any money from them he said son well, they're a really nice family he said but and they deserve my help but he, he, he could be very nice as well and he wouldn't drink with, he didn't really like the company of other gangsters. Yeah, he was partners with Eddie Richardson in the unlicensed boxing, but he chose to drink with the window cleaner or the, and I said, why do you drink with those old mugs? And he goes, son, they're not mugs. They go to work from nine to five. They look after their family and they're really decent people. He said, but these people, he said, gangsters won't give you nothing. They just take off your take off you. They're leeches. He said, see that guy, the, the window cleaner, you mug off, who the poor Harry, the window cleaner. He said, he gave me a bit of work and I earned a million pounds. He said, someone, <laughs> who, was, was, I can say that, I'm not implicating my dad, but he, at the time, this this guy's, there was a guy in Norfolk, he's, he, his daughter was going out of a Colombian drug baron. They were storing all their coke in this guy's shed, underneath the shed. Now, this guy got in touch with the window cleaner. He said, do you know anyone who might be, I think it's a load of drugs. He got in touch with my dad. My dad's his son. He said, I didn't move straight away and earned 900 grand out of it. He said, so what gang's going to come to me and tell me he's got a load, a big parcel of fucking get? He said, but he wasn't a drug dealer with dad, but he, on this occasion, he moved that from A to B and got his money. Yeah. But he was a, he was a great, as a kid, we would have anything we wanted. My mum was a lot, my mum was nearly 20 years younger than my dad. She was like the glamorous lady, but she was the one who wore the trousers. If my dad was in a pub and she phoned up, he'd go, no, 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 no. And then he'd be straight with his gold spot, straight in his car driving home. You know, like it was, he was petrified of my mum. But she wore the trousers. Definitely. Yeah, and 100%. Aside from obviously your dad being a local celebrity almost, what was family life back at home? He was fantastic. My dad, my dad, my dad was a family man. He would come home. We had three Yorkshire Terriers. We had two Rottweilers, and we had a little cat. And we, my dad, my dad would just. He was. An, he was a family man. He loved his mum. He'd go and see his mum mauled every single day. She lived in South London. He would go and see her every day. Drop cigarettes off. Sit and have a cup of tea with her. She always used to do tomatoes on toast. But my nan had five sisters and a brother who died in a fire in Canada. So she had lots and lots of family members. So as you went into my man's, all you'd hear is three bell rings. People coming in all day long, every day. And in 1978, my dad was working on a film called uh, The Macintosh Man with. Uh, 
who was the guy, George James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, I think it was, and he took them both round to his mum's because she loved uh, uh, James Cagney and, and he was on the crutches at the time and, he, and my dad was minding him and he took him round to my nan's and it was like the highlight of my nan's life. She had like a picture on, which I'm going to put in my dad's book of like, and obviously then my dad knew Frank Sinatra because he'd been working with him since the 50s and Frank had come over and stayed with my dad at Forest Hill where he was living. Did so he, not, did did you, he know Rod Stewart? Uh, no, we had a, we had a, we had a funny a running with Rod Stewart in Langham's. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> we was we was in Langham's one day. My dad had the back to, his back to him, and uh, one of we was making a lot of noise. And uh, obviously, my dad and all his friends. It was on Lauren Perrier Rose causing a big, and it, my dad was smoking a big. He always smoked big Cahibas. and uh, there was loads of smoke, and you could see Rod, Rod's missus was getting a right arm, and he's, he's, he's and he's like kicking, and he's like all like done up like a little tart and uh and he's and uh the mind the mind that went over to the table but sort of as my dad turned around he looked at my dad went over to the table he went around like that moved his hands a bit and then they got up and left straight away and that's when i thought fucking hell and i knew rod stewart was and obviously then my dad would say to me well i said i'm going up london then i'm 17 i want to go to a club he went i'll go and see my pal lenny at the hippodrome or, or johnny johnny madden at Stringfellas. so every time i used to go there, i didn't want to like do it sean but i'd go to one day i went is there lenny about mate two great big bruises on the door and they went who, who wants to know, mate? I said, oh, it's Jimmy Tippett, uh, Junior. It's Jimmy Tippett's son. He went, two seconds. Next thing you know, Lenny come bowling over. Like, he's <laughs> massive lump, Lenny. And he's got his fingerless gloves. So he went, come in, young Jim, come in. He said, but you drop these fucking herbits out of you with yourself. Don't be hanging around with these Oh, it's very my language. But no, and then I've had to sit down in a side of bar and he took me all the way home after Sean. It was so, it did have its good things, but also all the doormen would sit there and watch me all night long. You know, like, because obviously they're my dad's friends and they didn't want anything undoing if I was in the toilet with another man I mean you're not taking drugs are you not up to no good I thought fuck it I, I, didn't, I wanted to I didn't have half I fuck, couldn't, couldn't do it but no it was uh, fantastic growing up like that and obviously my mum my and dad had loads their friends sort of we used to go to Marbella we'd go to Freddie Foreman's club which was Eagles up in Port Benoose and that was like that was my first introduction into cocaine really because they used to have bowls of like please four or five ounces of coke with playing cards stuck in them and everyone would just like take a little bit and or go off to the toilet and have a, and all the women are walking about in shoulder pads like sung out of Dallas. And all the guys have got like, like, like sung out of Miami Vice with those snow socks on with the white trousers and the white shoes and the big Rolexes on. And that for me, that was my friends at school, their mums and dads were like builders and you'd see them driving their normal cars at our house. You'd see Ferraris outside and Range Rovers and Rolls Royces and all these characters coming in and out. And then, we, and then what, the next week, you see one of me, the mum and dad's friends in the paper who just gone, gone down on our robbery or killed someone. And you think, oh, but they was all right. They was, like, it was, it was, that was normal life. Yeah. It was very similar to, I'd say, an English version of Goodfellas. Yeah. Very, very that, similar. That first line of coke then, did you get hooked on it or was it just... I was, do you know what it was, Sean? I was, really, I, was, I was just about to get really into going to, go into the boxing in a big world. Frank Warren was signing me up with Sports Network. And, I, and I, I was working with some uh, well-known gangsters in South London who were like friends of my dad's, my dad's friend's sons. And we used to go to a place called Charlie's Wine Bar, which was like, I think I remember Peter Bleaksy saying, if the roof would have fallen in that night, 90% of South London's underworld would have been oh, gone. Yeah. You had like Tony White from the Brinks Mat robbery. You had the Arifs. You had uh, Johnny Fleming, who was on a Security Express robbery, who got extradited back. All big, big names. Jimmy Brand, you had all massive, massive players in South London, all the Peckham firm, the Wild Bunch, they used to call them, because as they'd come in, they'd, they'd normally leave someone dead in the toilets or, or the half dead. They were like really evil people. But uh, I loved it. I was like a kid, like a sponge, just soaking up all oh, this. I was like, fucking hell. And I remember I didn't touch nothing. I didn't even drink. I didn't even have a drink. I was drinking sparkling water. And I used to end up driving a lot of them up to the clubs in London. They'd go, they'd bung me a few quid. 
And then one day he gives me, oh, please have a line, Jim, have a line. I remember like, he was chopping it up and I could you get that smell of it. It's like, it smelled like paint stripper. And I was like, fuck, I'll, I'll just do a little tiny bit, do a little tiny bit. I remember thinking, wow, that's fucking, oh, no, I was chatting away, I'm fucking chatting away for the, the fast as anything. But I was like, oh, this is great. But then I'll just sort of get myself a little half a gram and then the next week it would go to a gram and then it would be an eighth. And then I was got into the E's, which with that, for me, when I was 19 doing the E's, they was just like the white doves of 91. And for me, when I had that first half a dove, I was like, I never danced in my life and I had my hands on the, the banisters in limelight in the church. And next thing, I mean, legs are fucking doing their own little thing. And I'm thinking, fucking hell. And then the next thing, I mean, Nigel Ben on the, on the, on the, in the VIP bit, we're on the fucking balcony, like rocking away on these E's. I'm thinking, oh, this is great. And yeah, I saw somebody who I fucking hated at school and I'm like, oh, how are you going? Come and have a drink, come and have a drink. And this to me was like, this was like, this was the best thing that ever happened in my life. And then I started getting involved in selling them. I mean, I, I was getting them. I remember I was paying, what was I paying? I was getting them cheap at the time for like just over five quids, but they would fluctuate like between 20, they used to go up to 25 five pences and I was knocking about £5.50 on the thousand and I was like doing 10000 a lot of my friends who were doing raves they would come down and buy them off me in bulk and it was like brilliant it was like I was thinking fucking hell at the weekends I had a Mercedes Cosworth a little midi gold Rolex I thought I was like fucking Al Capone I was like I thought, honestly I thought I had loads of money stashed everywhere a flat in the Isle of Dogs I was like fucking not even 20 my mates at school were going to work for like 10 grand a year I was earning that a week and I'm thinking but I would then spend most of that and I'd be like in a drug induced state from Thursday to the Monday and then it'd be like working all week to just get back to Thursday and then restock and then go back again it was just like it was just like a drug mental drug craze but the ease that definitely was like the they were, I had some great times. We had Andrew Pritchard on. Was he involved in your e-dealings? Do you know what it was? <laughs> I, 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 Dave, Dave Courtney was doing all the, all the raves at the scene at the time. He used to put, Dave was always, he was the head doorman at Limelight. I caused him havoc, to be truthful. He, he, he used to suffer a lot. We was in there one night and there was a big fight between the Adamses uh, over North London, who I know, and you had uh, my lot in South London. But they, the South London lot got the better this particular night and there was blood. It, there was a, it was a, a you know, like felt wallpaper. I can't remember what they used to have in Indian restaurants. They had that in the limelight VIP bit, but it was blood all up the walls. Yeah. And I went back to limelight a few weeks later and Dave went, Jim, he said, he pulled me to say, he went, Jim, he said, it's come orders from above. They don't want you in here because of what happened that night. It's blood. I said, well, what do you mean they blame me? He said, well, you're the one being recognised the most. I thought, fuck, I'm 19 years old. He said, but the orders from above had said, like, they didn't want me in limelight nightclub because obviously there had been a, a massive, massive gang fight. But then obviously, obviously, then we used to go to Legends in Old Berlin Street. We would, my dad, mum and dad's friends owned the WAG club, so we would go, I never spot, we'd always go to other clubs. But no, Dave was very much on the scene at the time. But we, we really, we, I, obviously then Dave was, my dad was very fond of Dave. And at that point, had you had a brushing with the law? Yeah, no, I'd had a few brushes with the law. I'd, I'd been off for fighting and like silly things as, as you do as, as a youngster. I mean, at school, I got arrested for taking a, like an air pistol to school. Silly things what? and an air pistol. You know, yes. like, like an air gun. I wouldn't consider that bad, but obviously today it's very, it, it's bad, isn't it? It's always it's going to lead to this and lead to that. But no, I did. I, I wasn't. I was more a fighter at school because obviously boxing was in my genes with my dad and that. So my dad was a very famous boxer, but then he went hooky with Mickey Duff because my dad won his first twenty professional fights, which in the fifties was unheard of. No one done that. He won 20 straight fights and had 16 knockouts. Wow. Now, to, to do that, even in this day, you would have a British title fight on your 15th fight. So on my dad's 
was going on a date with Joan Collins on his twenty first on his on his twenty first fight. He was going on a date with Joan Collins, who Richard Attenborough, my dad's friend, set him up with because they was friends. They lived in Greenwich at the time, and my dad was boxed out of Greenwich. And they, my dad said to me, "Oh, son," he said, "I was getting fifteen quid a fight." So you're talking about 1954, 55. He, he said, "Son, I, I'm like I know it would have been it'd been about fifty three. And he said, "He said, son, he said I was going on a date this night, and then Mickey Duff said to me, "If you go down in the third round, I will give you hundred and seventy five quid." Now my dad said, "You imagine I'm going on a date with a beautiful actress." He said, I can go with 15 quid or I can go with 100. He said, 15 quid wouldn't still pay for night. He said, but having 175 quid in your pocket in the 50s is like, it's like you going out with 10 grand in your pocket. I said, he said, so what would you do? And you haven't, he said, and boxing wasn't like, yeah. he, he, my dad didn't sit that he was fighting under three different names, my dad. So he put, he put a man in a coma in Wales once and give a dodge. He was fighting under a different name because back then you could only fight so many fights a month. So my dad was obviously, they were skin and his family, his, his dad was had poor of his lungs through working as a plasterer. So my dad said, he was looking after the whole family. So my dad said, I, I, I was fighting under three different names just to go and put food on the table, son. He said, so this one particular night, he put the guy in a coma. The guy looked like he was going to die. So then my dad had to give his real name. He was held all night in Wales in Swansea. But it, obviously, it was a very, very tough sport back then. People don't realise. People weren't boxing for like what they are now. For like, it's like a business or they were boxing for like endorsements and sponsorship. Back then, it, you was fighting to put food on the table. It was a total different sport to what it is now. And it was a lot harder then. So it obviously was imprinted in your genes. Yeah, because obviously my granddad was a bare knuckle fighter. His dad was a bare knuckle fighter. They was called the Fighting Dyers of Lucian. And I've obviously been researching this for my dad's book. So I paid a, a boxing historian £250 to come up with all my dad's fight, fight career. So he's come up with a great big folder for me. It's brilliant. So I've just given that to the woman who's writing my dad's book, <clears throat> Julie Shaw. She's a number one crime writer in the North. She's written like 20 number one bestsellers. Rieda? Yes. She's yes. a very, very big writer. Yeah, she's like the Martina Cole of the North. So obviously I still have, obviously where I've been sort of, uh, me and Paige have uh, been together a year yesterday. So we've sort of, I've, I've been sort of, we've been enjoying our life. So I've got to knuckle down in the new year and, and put, put, put my dad's book together. How did your mum and dad meet? Uh, my dad had a nightclub called The Westerner in Peckham. So which was like, it was a wild house. So my dad like, run a security team there. You had a, one of my dad's close friends was Georgie Cooper. No, no relation of Henry Cooper. He played Jack Nicholson's minder in the Batman film. Mm -hmm. The big bald guy who carries the, the stereo belt with a big handlebar moustache. Well, George was like, they, so they had their own door team there. My dad, it was my dad's club uh, with Joey Collier, a scrap metal guy from Peckham. And uh, my mum was one of the waitresses, but she said she couldn't stand my dad. She said, oh, he was a bit old because he was a lot older than my mum. But my dad said, she said he sort of grew on her because my mum was like young, petite, blonde. And she goes, oh, he used to get on my nerves a little bit, Jim. And then my dad was like, and he, he kept trying and trying. I think after seven months, she said, I finally went on a date with him and he told me he had a penthouse flat. She said, I didn't know it was a fucking top floor council flat in Forest Hill with all birds shut out the windows and he still had his ex-girlfriend living there. But they, no, but they ended up they ended up getting well. My dad's, my dad's, everyone's given them six months. When they first got together, they said, no, six months, six months. But my dad, my mum, they, they lasted until my dad died of dementia, which was in uh, October 20th, 2016. Wow. And then my mum died five years ago. She died, she, five years later, she died. She was only 73. She, my dad was in his 80s, late 80s. And uh, my mum was uh, 73. She died last year with terminal cancer. Mm. She had it for a year and that, Sean, was the sort of wake-up point in my life. I was going out still doing trade, still at it and doing bits and pieces. But my mum died and she, I moved back home to my mum and she sort of started talking to me and telling me stories, just saying, look, Jim, I'm, I, I want to leave you all my money because my sister's had a lot of money herself. She didn't need the money what my mum had 
and my, my mum said, look, can't you just listen about life? She, she told me so much knowledge and to this, I actually have listened to everything she said and I spent that year with her and she died in a nursing home. She was actually bringing her own excrement up in her mouth. Yeah. She, 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 wouldn't, she wouldn't take any, uh, she wouldn't take any, uh, Tablets, no medication. She went out on her terms. She she ate what she did. Her belly used to get inflamed. They used to have uh, these uh, these nurses come around, Macmillan nurses, and mm. they used to have to inject her stomach to you know to take it down. But she wanted to eat what she wanted. She was smoking. She'd have a glass of Lauren Perrier every couple of days. Mm. She done it on her terms. And then I, I I always thought she was she was such a strong lady. And it really she even to this day I still even when I do. I think about things, what my mum told me, and I know they're looking up over me and I do want to do the best of my life now. I've, I've dropped out all the toe rags, all the criminals. They're, they would never, there's no honour amongst thieves, Sean. You know, listen, these people, these people would grass you and do bad things. Mm. All this, they don't touch women and children. They're, listen, these people have got no morals. The real people, the people going to work nine to five and look after their families, they're the real heroes. They're the, and the people, the nurses, they're the real unsung heroes. And I want to be a straight worker now, earn a straight pound note, go on lovely holidays with my girlfriend. I want to be with my girlfriend all the time and make and have lovely meals and enjoy life. <laughs> so growing up, so. growing up, was it just you and your sister? Yeah, my sister Carrie, yeah. She's two years younger than me. She married a, a, a North London uh, guy. So she's, uh, she's, she, she, she went over the other side and my mum said, she went, oh, she went over that side. But no, she had a beautiful wedding. Uh, they had a, Terry Adams' wife was there, Ruth. Uh, a lot of the notorious characters from North London were there. But yeah, no, so they got, uh, they got married. But, but it was, my mum wasn't really close with my sister's sister. She was, my sister was, uh, I don't want to say it sound a bit bitter or twisted towards my sister because she's we haven't spoke since my mum uh, done her will because obviously I got left uh, three quarters of the of the will and my mum's reasons were because I didn't have really anything but I I'd been a son when she was dying I was there every single day when she was dying for a year when my sister went over three times which I think personally I shouldn't I'm disclosing this now I think it's disgusting as a daughter she I think it's disgusting how she treated my mum and then she expected to have all that money. But she didn't. She wasn't a daughter. But were you close growing up? Protective old, older. Brother? I was always protective. If she had boyfriends, I'd always go and punch her heads in if they started, or <laughs> if they dropped her out, I'd always go and beat them up. But no, no, we wasn't really. I mean, actually, no, we weren't that close. Actually, I remember being at bus stop once. I drove past. I'm seventeen with BMW waving at her, and it was like a cold night. You know, we weren't that. No, we weren't that close actually. No, but no, no. But we were still like. I, I'm more. My mum and dad were sort of big, big characters. And I sort of grew, I, I always wanted to be like my dad, which I could never be. I couldn't be one-tenth of the man he was. But I, I, I'm trying my hardest now to be a better person and I, and I like the person I've become. Mm. So your first arrest then was gone at school. What was your second arrest? My second arrest was, funny enough, for a theft of a Suzuki Jeep roof. Do you remember that? My mum had a little Suzuki Jeep and I and I took the roof off one day and I'd frayed all the, all the bit what you had to fold it into the front bar. It shed like one of these SJ410 things. And I remember, I remember outside the club one night I, saw, I had the car and it was, right next to a fire station I thought oh that's got the same roof and I knew how to take it off so I took this car like an idiot I was being fucking filmed by a fucking fireman <laughs> over the road so I got nicked for theft at 17 went to court and got a £550 fine and then obviously a, about six months late no 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 when I was 21 so it was uh, we'd had a sale or a turn off a jewellery in Hatton Garden on about 50, 60 grand worth of watches we took and we didn't we didn't end up taking them back we just sold the watches and went out partying and I ended up getting a theft charge for that and then the judge I remember going to Croydon Crown Court it was and the judge went no 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 this is a, you're going to get a, a term of imprisonment this is a short sharp shock mm. to make you never come back to prison again and I remember getting six months and it was like oh, I was like 
It's like my head was spinning round. And what was worse, when I went downstairs, as they put you onto the van, you're in the handcuffs. It was some prick I used to go to school with, a right <laughs> arsehole. He was one of the group four security guys. He was like grinning like anything because we didn't never we never saw eye to eye at school. And it was like, it was he's having his last moment of glory. And I thought, you dog. So they took me to High Down, which was over Banstead. And I remember going in and they give you your, your little fireproof blanket and your little your bedding and your, your, your bowl and your, your razor and whatnot. And I remember, like, in the morning, you just hear the, 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 it was like, it was just a real sound. You could hear it echoing, and you just hear the screws with it. Like, they, I think they used to do it on purpose swing their keys, you'd hear the jingle jangle, and then you'd opening up the doors. They'd go, breakfast, breakfast. It was a, I was sentenced on a Friday, but I was only there for about six weeks, and I was sent, sent over to Ford Prison, which was really cool. But I met some, it was then I thought, no, but I quite like this. I went, and it was like, I'd met, uh, the Queen's cousin was there. He was, uh, they owned the Jewhurst Butcher's Chain. He was named Michael, let me think of his name. I'll tell you what, you, you can Google this. It's, he, he cut his wife's head off and drove about no. in a mini for like, say, like two months. He was the Queen's cousin. So he was, he'd been detained in a hospital and he was in Ford. Michael, what was his name? And I'll tell you what, who was there, Ernest, 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 uh, who, who was the one, Ernest, uh, who swindled Nissan out of all the millions. Ernest Shannon, he's the, the Shannon, he, he swindled Nissan out of bit, uh, like tens of millions of pounds. But even in the prison, they was holding, they was having their own private caterers come in and sitting at the table, eating what they wanted. And, on, and I used to think, one day I went to the library and I went, no, sorry, uh, Mr. Shannon's having a private works me but then I saw that money is power and, and, mm. and power and these people but in Ford you, you had a better type of arsehole so to speak mm. it was more and it was a lot of like people in for famous crimes you know like and you had like the sort of or it was like if the football had got done for drink driving they'd always be sent to Ford <laughs> but that was the first and only time I ever went to a decap prison then after that it was then I was away for attempted murder uh, handling stolen goods uh commercial burglary it was I obviously then it was I was a full time career career criminal so which was first after them <laughs> no then I was just bang at it basically so when I come out of prison my mum would come and visit me there she went this would be the first and the only time I'll visit you if you choose this as your career I will never ever come and see you again and I felt sorry we, me and my mum spoke at great lengths when she was dying and I said mum she went why did you go down the I mm. said mum to be honest cocaine got hold of me for a lot of years Sean it got hold of me for like a good 20 years but I loved that lifestyle I loved going out in the it was just it was a great 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 thing for me and I was out with my friend the other day, funny enough, Phil. He used to play Des Barnes in Coronation Street. <laughs> and he that. went through similar things, Phil. And uh, we were talking the other day and he was telling me stories when he was on Coronation Street. And obviously, I, I, all these people have been friends for me and mine for 30 years. I've got a lot of celebrity friends. And it's like, everyone's had that same problem with drugs. And I think it's drugs, what people don't realise, really do get older people. Sometimes, and I've got an addictive personality anyway. So if I like something, it's... Full on. It's full on, yeah. yeah. But now, so I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I do. I and every now and again, I might, I might, I might grab. If I'm out and I'm drunk, so I'm going to do a little line. I might have a little bump, but I'm not really. For me now, it's all about going out for a nice meal, being with my girlfriend, going shopping, sitting indoors, watching a nice thing on Netflix, and having loads of sweets. <laughs> it's like my whole life has gone <laughs> complete 360. I'm probably like boring old twat now, but no, but no. We, I, I like my whole life's changed, and I would, I think that a lot more needs to be done with drugs. I think drugs is the real root of all evil. So when you moved out of your parents' house, where did you go? I was staying with friends. I had my own flat, first of all, in a, in I had one in Canary Wharf. I had one over in the Isle of Dogs. But then obviously when money started going down, I was sofa surfing with various friends. Or if we went out on a mad one, a lot of the guys I was working with were all, all Brinks Mac guys. 
but there was a money. There was so much money in South London in the nineties, big big money. And obviously, we would my friends would like we'd go drinking Blackheath and we'd go to the Hamilton Hotel. They would they'd hire they would hire the whole hotel and it'd just be for the faces. You'd have like people like Danny Roth, who was a hitman who killed Charlie Wilson. You'd have Jimmy Brand, Johnny Fleming, who was extradited back from Miami. These are like very famous criminals and very powerful criminals. And Eugene Carter, who was a massive drug dealer. We'd all be at the hotel, everybody would be partying. No one would have to pay for drinks. And then there'd always be, we'd stay there. Or if I'd go back to my friends over in North London, stay with him for a few days in Hatton Garden. And it, it, I was just, we, we, we didn't know where from one day to the next where you'd end up. Mm. And I like that bohemian lifestyle. It was nice. It was like some, sometimes I'd be sleeping in the car. So I, I, if, if things were bad that week, I'd be sleeping in the back of the car. And I can remember like my legs really hurting. So it wasn't always as glamorous as people think it is. So your crime started to escalate. Really bad, Sean, yeah. And the coke then, then it got worse. And it would be like we would be, I mean, my uncle, my, one of my, sorry, my godfather was one of uh, London's richest men. His name was uh, Johnny Till, T-E-A-L. He was in the Sunday Times Rich List. He 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 was very. He come from the Peabody Estate in South London, which was known as like where the, the scum of the earth lived. It was like it was social housing at its worst level. And uh, he come out. He in the sixties. He invented. Uh, he started doing reconditioned engines and gearboxes for cars. And he it just went pff, massive. He ended up buying his own massive yacht in uh, south of France. He had a house in Bel Air. He had his own private jet and he had, in, when I was growing up in the 80s, he had a Ferrari with one John, a Porsche with John 1 and a Rolls Royce with 007. He owned those, that, those, that, that number plate is, his, is priceless. He still got it. And it was on a white Rolls Royce, silver spirit. And when I was christened, I was christened in that Rolls Royce with 007. So my mum said, you was always a flashback. And, and what chance did you have? You had like, you, 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 all, the, all this going on in your life. So no, I mean, and I always like to stand out from the crowd. I've always been a flash fucker, but it's, but now, so I'm very humble now. And I do realise, it, it, I, I wish I, I do wish I'd done things different, if I'm honest. I wish I'd have gone to, but in saying that, when I hear of all people, like these bankers and these stockbrokers, they're worse than, they're worse than the criminals on the coke and, and deranged and, 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 and debaucheous. They're, they're like really bad. So, you said your mum tried to put the brakes on, but you didn't listen. Was there anyone else talking? My dad never. No. See, my dad, he, he'd say to me, son, slow down, what are you doing with these people, blah, blah, blah. He never, ever told me off, Sean, never. He ne if he would have put discipline in me from a young age, I could have probably gone on to be a great boxer. But he never, my dad was, he, my dad was very laid back. He was too laid back. My mum was like, she, poor, my poor mum, I'd probably put her in that early grave. But it, she's, no, she she tried and tried. I mean, my sister went up, my sister was right. Like, my sister was the bad child. She, as we were kids, my sister would be out taking LSD at bloody, uh, she got done for racist remarks at a private school, got chucked out of private school with one of the great train robbers' daughters. She was like, she was ruthless, my sister, and then she got chucked out of the next school. And then she left school with no qualifications, and I left school with loads. And my mum got, through my mum, she got her a job in Price Waterhouse through a friend she had there. Then my mum got a job in uh, Wall Street in America, but my mum funded her to get her diploma in stockbroking. So my mum done all this for my sister, and she never acknowledged that, like, what my mum done for her. But my mum tried with me, Sean. When I went up to Hull, I got married and she tried to throw those financial carrots, but it was just, I, I just, I think I was always destined to be a career criminal. But was that, a, a, oh, sorry, I can't. Was that an example of your father though? With your father I think he was up growing and up and seeing my dad and his friends, but then I didn't realise what they'd done. They'd built up their reputations through like being, they'd come from nothing in their lives. They'd all they had poor families. They would, they'd gone on, double, I thought I could just be 19 and be like turning to my dad. Mm -hmm. And real life isn't like that. It's, I don't just, be, you have to work and uh, years and years of getting respect and getting a good name and, and being involved with various firms. I mean, but I, I saw my dad like that and just thought, I was just going to be like that. 
Mm. And, it, and it, it, life isn't like that. You have to build up respect and, and rapport and, and, and build up relationships with people. So but, what was your longest stretch in the next prison? I, no, my, longest, my longest one was when I was in Hull. I was uh, up for two Section 18s on a doorman. Of, I knocked two doormen out in a, in a, in a club called The Office, a uh, lap dancing club in Hull. And I was on bail for those. And then I'd had a row. Someone attacked me at a party, a big bodybuilder, and he had me in a headlock. I've grabbed the knife off the side, trying to get him off me. And so obviously his face is cut to ribbons. Then I've turned around and stabbed him there, which is, and it, and it pierced his bowel. So I've left, I, and then he still didn't have, he's still holding me. So I've grabbed the cooker grate, uh, the, the cast iron bit off the cooker, smashing him with that. But there was a girl standing behind me and obviously she's got knocked out. Everyone who was in the, in the party got, was all on the floor and I'm the only one standing. But obviously the, the thing, the cooker had like little curved things on it. So it's caught my head. So there's blood from my own, so my own DNA is all over the place. I had no chance. So the next day I remember I got home and I saw police cars coming to my house in Beverly, near the race course. I had an apartment there and I jumped out the window. I had a bag and a friend of mine picked me up, took me back to London. She was a film producer, funny enough, and she, she thought it was all rough. She, she loved it. She thought it was great. And uh, no, then I was on the run, got caught. In, I got caught on the 29th of December, 2004. That 30 police come kicking their up. They went through the front windows and everything. But they caught me in West Jewel, which is over in Epsom in Surrey, took me back to Hull as a security risk. And I, and I remember they, they they moved me to Strangeways, Army Jail. They was, they, they, I lost my track. I had one train. It was all they, it was all psychological what they were doing to me. And then they sent me to psychologists. I had to see psychologists. No judge or court would listen to my story because they said what went on in that party wasn't of a normal human being. Why did he do that to you, though? We had a fight. He tried to hit me, tried and chin me, but he couldn't. So then he's grabbed me because obviously he hasn't chin me. He's tried to grab me. So he's a, he's a like big like bodybuilder at the time. But uh, then his statement really was really detrimental to me. I mean, it said he was in fear of his life. He was like oh. he was having he was having flashbacks. Obviously, the personal victim statement was, and obviously the crime scene looks. Even when I saw it, and I was showing people in prison, they went. And I said to my sister, "What am I looking at?" And he went like L plates. I went, well, "What's L plates?" He went life. I went, "Whoa, he's not fucking dead." He went, he went "No, Jimmy, this, you, you're on two section eighteens on the doorman." This is a section eight. This is attempted murder, like section eight in ten. He said you're on an afraid charge. He said you, and the two other people have been attacked violently at a party. He said this is a, this is they, and this is when IPPs two thousand four two thousand five were coming about. And I went no, no, I was shit myself. And then he, I had to see a psychologist because when I went in front of the judge, he went no, he said not until Mister Tibbetts. Uh, Health, uh, the, the mental mental health has been assessed. So I saw the psychologist, and then they said I was totally all right. And they said, and the court went, the court went, no, no, we want to get a better one from London because we don't believe him. So the court don't even believe their own psychologist. <laughs> that they, they really. And, I, and when I said to my sister, he went, "I'm afraid I can't represent you anymore." He went, "What do you mean?" He went, "I've been told by the by this has come from the judges that no no solicitors in whole can represent you." And what was the altercation over? The, it was over, but they said, but what it was, I, funny enough, Tony Thompson, who wrote the book Gangs, A Journey into the Heart of the British Underworld, had featured me in a big news, art, news article in The Observer called Hull is Britain's New Drug Capital. And there was a big picture of me standing by a Ferrari and it said, former armed robber Jimmy Tippett Jr. has, has made home in the hole with some of the most notorious faces. And then the local papers then started calling us the Mafia Men. So then obviously it become it become like it was it was a, a political case. And the, so the, obviously I couldn't have a solicitors in a hole. I had to employ someone from Tucker's solicitors it was in Manchester and they end up defending and they, and they said to me do you know you, you, we've got to get this case out of hold because you are going to you are going to you're going to be served you're going to get a life sentence I went what do you mean? Went, well, we'll try and get you a low tariff. I went, no, what do you mean low tariff? I don't want a, I don't want a life sentence. I, don't, I can't have a life sentence. And he went, no, no. So we ended up getting the case moved to Leeds, which was really good. And it was a recorded judge on the day from London. 
So the judge, upon reading the papers, went, the guy was ready to give evidence, but apparently then he didn't want to give evidence. He said that he'd had gunshots at his house and bits and pieces, which was, I don't know what happened, but it's uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago, so I get a bit of amnesia. But no, it was so he'd had gunshots at the house. He'd been threatened on the day of the court. The woman had told so many stories, the lies, that it was so conflicting that they, they had to throw, they, they, they didn't want to use her because they said she was a bad witness. So the CPS come back and said, would you go guilty to a section 20 with excessive self-defence for 15 months? And I thought, well, that means I'll get out today because of the time I've done. I went, so the, so, the, so I said to my sister, what? He went, listen, take the, bite their hand off right now. He said, I'm not even going to accept your answer. I'm telling him yes. So I went, yes. But as soon as that happened, the, ju- the, the, the judge went, we've got to stop the case. Apparently, Mr. The, there's police officers from Humberside who want to talk to Mr. Tippett in holding cells. Went downstairs. They said, we're arresting you now for two Section 18s and a fray charge and another nightclub in Hull. So that then stopped me because I would have been released from court that day, Sean. And they went, well, now. So then I've had to go on another trial which then all these people in the hole, this was back in the hole, so it was, there was a political case. So in the hole, I had all these juries come in and they were going, all right, all right. They looked like they were just on the local council state in the hole. I thought, oh, this is brilliant. I'm getting a not guilty here. So I put my Specsavers glasses on. I had my little uh, golf, I had my little Pringle jumper with my shirt hanging over, tripped up when I was giving evidence, like Moody trip up that, and they was all laughing. On the way, on, the, on the lunchtime, the judge went, no, I, I want to discharge the jury. I went, what? What do you mean discharge a jury? He went, no, nah, they was all very fond of Mr. Tibbetts and it looked like it was going Mr. Tibbetts' way. Mr. Tibbetts been playing this court like a circus, playing this court like a circus, being with his little antics. So the judge saw what I was doing. I was making out, I was writing all of it along. I was, I was playing, of course I was playing the fucking judge and the jury. But then obviously, then the next, when they brought in a new jury, it was like they brought in the fucking police academy. They was all stood there in fucking, uh, there was emotionless. They was all like, it was like they was all robots. They was all stood there like that, glaring at me. So I was found guilty of an affray, which I didn't do. And they give me, the judge instantly give me an 18-month uh, uh, consecutive, which was on top of. So he could have done it concurrently, and I would have still got out that day. But then he, I was found not guilty of the two Section 18s, which I was guilty of. And I wasn't guilty of the, 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 the non-violent afraid. But he gave me the maximum sentence and then give me another six months. So I end up with 34 months. Then he put me on MAPA, which is, this had just come out as well. It's called Multi-Agency Public Protection. So they considered me to be a danger to the public. So when I was released on bail, when, sorry, when I was released from prison, I ended up being in the, what, a place called the Wolds. And when I was released from there, they, I went, obviously I had to see the police, the uh, probation, the social services, they all sit around once a week and have a meeting on you. And if they, so obviously I got nicked again on the six and the six and the six, 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 and I called it my book Devil's Sentence. <laughs> and got nicked for two Section 18s again. On, I've had a row with somebody, two Section 18s, but then all those charges were dropped. So then I, it took me eight months to get parole and get back out. And where did they send you? That was back in, so I'd moved back down to London to be with my cousin over in Orpington in Kent. Uh, and then they moved me back, to, they took me back to Highdown. And what was it like in Highdown back then? Highdown was okay. It was uh, funny enough because I knew loads of people in Highdown. So it was a local jail to London. So, and, and Surrey. So every, I knew, I knew everyone there. And there was a lovely prison officer there called Mr. Calloway. He's been there for years. He become really friendly with Terry Adams as well. He's really nice. He used to bring me food in and like cans of coke. And it, he was a nice guy, Sean. You know, like not all prison officers are bad. You do get you do get ninety percent of shit. But then saying that, I'd said to everyone else in a prison with a hundred people on a wing, 97, 97 of those people are shitbags. Mm. They're scumbags. I, I would write sometimes you'd have a more intelligent conversation with a prison officer than you would an inmate, and, that, and that's facts. And obviously now I went back to prison. Obviously, uh, I was set up in two thousand nineteen. I've been uh, I've done some business in Brighton with some people. It went a bit pear shaped. I was walking in York on the 17th of December, 2019. 
Uh, I was in uh, York with some friends. We ended up partying back in a hotel room. And next thing I heard, Jimmy, Jimmy. I've looked out and I've seen blue lights everywhere. So I had an eighth of coke on me. I've put that down top of my trousers. I'm thinking, I'm not going to be, I've done nothing wrong. So then I said, put your hand on your head, uh, uh, and do pigeon steps towards us. And as I've looked there, there was a helicopter. There was dogs outside of me. And I was like, I thought, I've been on it for like five, six hours. I'm tr- I'm doing pigeon steps. But you, you, I'm looking at all these red dots all over me, guns. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, your head's spinning. I'm like, and it's bang. It's like being what? And I was like, at the moment, the cop hit me with a gun. And he'd done, he done me a rear stack for like his safety. And I was thinking, I was trying to get the arms around to get the gear out to like to empty it. And I remember we got back to York Police Station and it was like, it was like, it was like surreal and they went, we're arresting you for an armed robbery at uh, Liberty's nightclub in Brighton where 60,000, you held a gun in someone's head and took 60,000 out of the safe. I went, you said what? You said yes. I went, no, I didn't fucking say yes. I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. So then obviously I, when we was at the counter and he's reading the charges out, I've got the Coke out the top and tried to swallow it, but the bag was too big. And so the copper is strangling me and I'm on the floor, but the copper, I give me his due. I don't want to get him. So he's going to me, just don't swallow it and I will let... And, and it, I said, I'm going to get recalled. I'm going to get recalled over his coat. It, went, you, it won't go to the, with the police. I mean, it won't go. He just looked at me in the eyes and said, it won't go. I will destroy it. But I got arrested for the coat. But funny enough, when the police from Brighton picked me up the next day, there was no coke. So he did stick to his word. And he later messaged me on Facebook when I got out of jail and said, I stuck to my word. I just didn't want to see you swallow that amount and you would have, you would have died. Yeah. So they're not all, all police aren't that bad. <laughs> but Brighton, they did set me up. So... I eventually a friend of mine called Paul Anderson from Manchester. He uh, used to have some nightclubs in Liverpool. He was the one who went round where we was on the 27th of November where they said I'd done a robbery. Went round to Leeds, all the bar owners, hotels, and got CCTV and statements. Sent it to my solicitor. So they dropped the robbery charge. But they said, the probation still deemed, because the gun was mentioned, said that because of my past and my name that uh, I'd have to go through to the parole board so I got released on April the 4th 2020 coming out of the prison Rochester prison where I was in it was like a ghost town I, got, I said can I get a taxi I've got two big bags I went can't get a taxi we're COVID I went, what do you mean <laughs> walking along the streets there's no one on the streets I'm walking down the road it's like a beautiful summer's day but there's no one about and it was like being a zombie, uh, one of these films. It was like there was there was no one. And I thought, I got to the train station. I said, oh, you've got to wait two hours. There's only special trains running for like key workers. I went, I've just been released from prison. And he went, no, oh, you still got to wait for two hours. So I remember it was just like, it was, it was mad. It was like, I couldn't believe it. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. (laughs) It doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colours, preservatives and additives. Koro's Snacks have none of that. I can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bio energy ball today. Ooh, salty pistachio. Got a little uh, chocolate bar here. I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Oh, that's good. Want to try it? Ooh. (laughs) So, what makes Coro special in comparison to others? 
Cora avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Going back to the situation with the doormen then, what yeah. was that about? Joey, you know, I was just a fucker show. I was just, I was in, I was in the hole one night. Uh, I was just, I was on the coke. And if someone looked at me the wrong way, I was, I was the first one to smash in. And I, these two guys were stood at the bar, they'd get a bit leery. And I remember chilling and both just went running over. And it was snowing at the time. It was, uh, it was around November. And I remember running outside and it was like the red light districts of home. My friend had a lap dancing club called The Office. And I was running up the road. And I remember falling over in the snow at the coppers. It was easy for the coppers. They just jumped on me. But I was on bail for that. So, but then that come to nothing. Well, obviously it didn't come to nothing. I got found not guilty. And that wasn't the attempted murder charge? No, that was that, that was on the, the another guy called Paul Morfitt. I can mention his name because it was all went through the criminal system, yeah. Paul Morfitt in a hole. And how did that come about? Well, we, we'd been at a party at his house that night and uh, he, he, was, he was one of these ones who used to get quite aggressive and in, in drink and drugs. And obviously I'd been rowing with somebody at the party and then he tried to sideline me. But I didn't go down and obviously fighting back and he's, he, was a, he was on the steroids. He was a big, 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 big old unit then and he was holding me in a headlock. And obviously where, where the kitchen sink was, was in the kitchen, the kitchen party, there was a knife on the kitchen side. I didn't have a knife on me. And where I, and obviously they said this in court, they could, because obviously they put the little markers on, you know, where you had the crime scene. And obviously where I'd reached for the knife, I hadn't opened the drawer because I'd reached for it in being fit, in fear of my life. They, I, that was the first thing that come to hand. If there'd been a rolling pin there, I would have grabbed the rolling pin and hit him with that. But there happened to be a knife on the draining board and I grabbed that. Mm. So really, that all, that's all taken into te technicality of, of when you're arrested for something like that. If you go with a knife, that's premeditated. Or if I would have opened that drawer, I would have been thinking of opening the drawer to get the knife. So because the knife was there, I hadn't, if, I said if there would have been a lemonade bottle, if there would have been anything closer, even if there was a tea towel, I would have used anything what I could grab because I couldn't breathe. Someone had me in a headlock and he was a powerful, big muscular guy. Is it like, you can't, you can only use so much force to fight back. Yeah, they the said, they, which they said, because I'd already yeah. cut him on the knife in se on the face in several places, mm. they said, by st if I, if I, because I stabbed him once, that was excessive force of self-defense. Mm. They said that I could, because I'd smashed it into him, but what happened was, when I smashed it into him, it burst his bowel. So what happened was his his poo was leaking into his belly. Yeah. So when 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 the next day when I, I was in the car, I, I think I delayed concussion because I kept pulling this. I said to this woman, Dawn, can you pull over so I can be sick? I was being sick, and I was, my friend was on the phone at this stage, and he said, Jim, he said, Paul Morfitt's just died. I said, What do you mean? It's like he was winding me up a little bit. This guy, and he went, No, he's died. He said, But he's just been. They, they brought him back to life, but apparently he died three times on the operating table because he was he was because where he'd been stabbed, he didn't realise, and for like two or three hours. But already then that his, his like excrement was leaking out of his bowel. So he so they opened him up from his groin up to oh. his neck. He'd had like 400 stitches, I think, 300 stitches. They said 372 stitches opened him up the front to, to obviously sort out the bowel. And it was like, obviously, that because of that, and obviously his personal victim statement saying that he said that I was like an absolute lunatic. And obviously with the judge, re I'd had a lot of fights in the hole because I was a cockney living up in a northern town. They said that basically I was a lunatic and obviously my past and my name and obviously being in the papers, bloody this and that. It was like, it was, it was an open shut case for them. Yeah. But obviously I thought, I saw two lots of psychologists and, and I actually, I, I, I actually won. So what is it about fighting? What does it give you? 
nothing now, Sean. Do you know what it is? I said me and my girlfriend was out the other day. We was we was uh, having words. So <laughs> I think I'd had a text message on my phone. And it was, it's, my girlfriend's very fiery, but she's got a right to with me being who I am. But uh, two guys come over and are you all right? Are you all right? She went, no, I did, did fuck off. She went, it's me having a go at him. It's not the other way around. But now, Sean, I know what I'm capable of. I haven't got to use that force because if I use that force, I know it's going to end up with me being on a prison van. So I do, I, I have to hold back. It's, don't get me wrong, I've been out 20, 30 times up north and could easily have a fight every night of the week. But part of me knows I can, what I can do and I have to count to 10 and know that it's going to result in me being arrested, putting in handcuffs and potentially going straight to prison. What enabled you to get to that point? I think uh, I've always been pretty angry. My mum was a very angry person. My dad was very calm. I, never, I saw my dad have one fight. One fight in his life I saw my dad have. And that was like, we was in the Spieler one night and there was a guy called uh, The Plum. And that's his nickname. I can't, because I, uh, he just stabbed, he'd come in my dad's friend's club, Harry Hayward, Flash, uh, Flash Harry Hayward, a gangster from South London. And he had a chance in Deptford. And uh, he come in the club one night and stabbed the doorman, opened the doorman up really bad. So Harry ran in the office, grabbed his gun, ran after him and shot him in the arse. Then the next day he'd gone to, through to a nice guy called Bugsy who works on the fruit stall in Lucia Market and stabbed a samurai sword in him and opened him up and like, literally right open it. The guy was a psychopath. He used to go to the pub and open people up for fun. You know, he was, a, mm. he was a, no one wanted to be around him. They, they called him the plum. And he come in, he was having a sh shootout with one of the families from Deptford one day. My dad's bill, my dad went, fucking any winners get broke, fucking someone's paying for it. I went, don't what? He like, my dad like, laughed at him. He was like, well, that's back. But then one day someone said, Jim, he's just coming in the spill. He's coming in the spill. And they had, it was like a, a flat above the kebab house. So as he was coming in, my dad went running over. He had like his, his suit on. And the geezer's come up with a big knife. And I remember my dad just went, crash, one right hand. And my dad hit him. His face, it looked like Sean. It was like something out of a cartoon. His face went all distorted and it was like his face was like it was like it was I've never seen my dad and my dad hit him and took the knife off him and then rammed it straight in his shoulder like rammed it straight he's oh. got a big blade my dad rammed it straight in his shoulder and it literally it pierced him to like where the carpet was yeah. I think they, I think when they come out they, they couldn't get him out because the carpet was like the knife was so wedged in and I went and I was at the top of the stairs and I went Jim get young Jim away get young Jim away so we went down the back of the fire exit and my dad got in, my dad had a Rolls Royce at the time. We got in Rolls Royce, we drove home. My dad went, ah, son, I was only fucking about that. He said, don't listen, don't, because I was out like at 13. And my dad went, no, I was only fucking about something. You didn't see what you saw. And I remember being sitting there thinking, wow, my dad, like, he was in. But I saw my dad do it and he hit him so hard. And obviously, growing up around Lewisham and, and those areas, I heard the stories about my dad. And obviously, when we walked in places, everyone went, oh, everyone stood up or everyone wanted to be his friend. And obviously, then, obviously, being my dad was a bo famous boxer, he was always in the boxing news. And then I'd be at school, one of the PE teachers would say, oh, look, I've got this magazine. Your dad was in it last night. There's a big thing, so, like a big thing on my dad. And then I started thinking, then it, I, I started like thinking, hang on a minute. And I'd see my mum and dad, I'd see my friends at school, their dads would drop them off in like full, full fiestas and full whatever. And then my mum and dad was just, or they'd come to the open evening, they'd be walking in like the fucking stars of the show. It'd be like, we was at the BAFTAs or something. And all you see all my friends going, look at your mum and dad, they look so glamorous. And it was as a kid, I was like, fucking hell, I love this. This is this is what I want. I mean, you speak so highly of your dad. What were the best and worst memories of him? There's no worst memories apart from when he uh, got dementia when he was 80. That was, uh, for me, really, really hard. To see somebody you love who's the most powerful man on the planet. It's to me, my dad, he was my hero. And seeing my dad get dementia and going into a psychiatric unit mm. and we had to go to the psychiatric unit and it was a lot of probably viewers won't remember the film you would probably remember Sean One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. yep. it was literally like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and it was it was just I was laughing me and my mum was laughing at the people in there which because it, it was it was highly amusing because you, you you couldn't register it and then obviously 
And I would wind my dad up and he goes, son, what do you keep fucking winding him up for? And then he goes to me, who's that woman now? I went, that's your wife, you silly bastard. He went, oh, she's nice looking, though. He said, she's a nice lady. He went, is she really? I went, and my mum was like crying because she went, how does he remember you? You're a little fucker and he doesn't even know me. I've been married to him for 40 odd years. But to see that decline and obviously when he went into the nursing home, his own brother-in-law, who was visiting him up at this stage, Sean, ended up in the same nursing home next door and they didn't even know who each other was. Mm. So that to sit, and then one day, my dad was being manhandled by one of the uh, uh, like nurses. And my dad's best friend uh, was a guy called Paul Moriarty who played Hatchet Harry in Lockstock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he also played Razors in Long Good Friday. Paul ended up grabbing hold of the nurse and went, if ever you do that again, there will be a problem. Do you understand I me? Mean, everyone recognised him because he's always been on telly and that. And obviously that stopped. And Dave Courtney obviously visited my dad as well. And obviously a lot of the nurses went, oh, Dave Courtney's been up. And my dad had a lot of other infamous friends who used to visit him. And obviously then it, it stopped. But obviously it was to see that, that was my worst, to see four years. When he actually died on the 20th of October, 2016, mm. My mum phoned me. I was just got in getting in from a party in Brighton and she went, Jim, uh, your dad started. I went, you messed about you. Why would I say something like that? And it was just me being at my head and just didn't really understand what was going on. And I was quite, it, a big weight was lifted off my shoulder. I was glad because my dad, if he could see how he was, mm. he wouldn't want to live like that. Mm. He would He would have said, son, why couldn't you put one in my head and just be gone with me? He said, because you wouldn't let anyone you love listen. The stories you told us about your dad then, it's yeah. all like people are getting bullied or victimised and he's got this sense of justice. Yeah. Where, where did he get that sense of justice from? He had very good parents, Sean. His mum was, uh, she was, funny enough, she was uh, a, work, she, they come from a Welsh family originally, but she was born in Hoxton in East London. His dad was in the army. His dad was a sergeant major in the army. His grandfather, they was all army men. And uh, one of my, uh, my great-great-grandfather, he, he, was, he was awarded uh, bravery services. They was fighting. He got beheaded when they was coming into battle in World War One. He was a uh, Samuel Tippett. He was a, uh, you can go, someone sent me a, a thing on it, a historian, and he got beheaded no in a World War One. Yeah. Holy so he got, got awarded loads man. of medals for obviously going into battle, which wow. they was very army people. There was, there was no criminal criminality in any of the family. My dad was obviously the first person to go professional because obviously his, his, his dad and his dad were bare knuckle boxers, but they was army men and they was, they was, they was hard grafters. They was workers. They weren't, no, apart from my uh, dad's brother-in-law, Fred, he was a criminal, but my dad was, my dad obviously, he got fell in with the boxing and crime that goes hand in hand. He sounded like the Robin Hood of the uh, underworld. Though. Yeah, he was, but obviously <laughs> he, grew, he grew up with Ronnie and Reggie. Ronnie and Reggie were f uh, friends of his from the age of 12. But then my dad told me when he was young, he said, son, he said, look, the craze, he said, there's no value around him. He said, all these people, like these people put themselves around him. He said, look, they're, they're all idiots, son. None of them have got any money. They, none of them have had a life like what I've had. My dad like, would go to New York. He would travel the world. He had friends all over the world. I mean, he knew Ara Asa Arafat. That he used to go meetings with him in, in the Park Lane Hilton. He knew that a lot of the Saudi royal families. He used to arrange security for them. One of the, I, I don't know if I can say I won't say the name. But one of the princes uh, got accused of a, uh, a lady tried to set him up in a London uh, hostess club. And my dad uh, went and spoke to this club and got everything retracted because it was they was they were trying to set sting him. And my dad then got called to the Hilton Hotel where they had a, a penthouse suite. There was the the main one of the kings were there. He sat my dad down. He said, oh, "What would you like?" Uh, and my dad said, "I'll tell you what you can give me. Uh, give me forty pounds." And the, and the king looked at my dad and went, "What do you mean?" He went, 40 pounds." He went, "What do you mean?" He went, "That's my expenses up here today." He went, "He said, well, I'll give you thousands." Would you? Want? My dad went, "No." And with that, that's what I didn't realize. My dad obviously didn't know it, but my dad was doing justice in his right way. But then his name become his legacy stands this day, Sean. I can go to certain places in London, and obviously my dad's best friends were like Bernie Eccleston. Uh, uh, Sterling Moss, 
uh, Frank Waterman, who was a Speedway Motor King racer, who went on to do be a big gold bullion robber. Uh, there was Georgie Walker, the, the boxer who built Brent Walker up, lost it all. Uh, built Bright Marina and then he went off to Russia and his daughter married into royalty. My dad's friends were like, every one of them had like the most fascinating story like he did. And to, to grow up, like Donald Sutherland was my dad's lifelong friend. So to grow up as a kid and see all these people and obviously film directors and, and producers were always at the house because they always wanted to get involved my dad in something. And it was like, I, I really loved that. Because he obviously had a lavish lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Up, but how did he go from, obviously, he had three different names boxing, putting food on the table to then turning to this... He got into nightclubs. He had the first... My dad had a lot of black friends. And in the 60s, a lot of West Indians had come over to London. And my dad opened one of the first black uh, reggae clubs called the El Petito in Lucia. And they used to have uh, Jimmy Cliff, is it? One of the reggae singers and a lot of the big, big people. And my dad had Roger Daltrey working for him <laughs> as a cleaner, cleaner. He used to sweep up the floors. And Roger Daltrey used to say to my dad, can't you get me into the singing? And my dad was like, one of his best friends, one of his biggest fans was a guy called Ronnie Scott, a famous jazz musician Remember? who had Ronnie Scott's club. And I've got pictures of my dad with his boxing, his second boxing manager, Benny Huntman, who was, whose partner was none other than my Lansky. That was his, there was a book called Shadowlands. I mean, I've got a photographic memory, so I remember everything. But no, uh, Benny Huntman was like, he was the biggest boxing promoter, but he was also uh, American partners with uh, Maya Lansky. So they started all the casinos in London 60s. So then when uh, Freddie Mills, who was my dad's boxing promoter, got shot dead, my dad was one of the main suspects along with uh, Benny Huntman because they said that it was Ronnie Cray. That, but there was another story besides that, that the Freddie Mills, the boxing promoter, was uh, the necktie strangler. A lot of women were getting strangled and, and killed along around London. It was like, like, like the Yorkshire Ripper type of thing, but in English they called it the, the necktie strangler. And a lot of them said it was uh, Freddie Mills who, who was the necktie strangler. And nobody got caught? No, there's been lots of... I've, I've been interviewed about it. It's quite an interesting story. It's something now... I, 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 like, I love journalism now. And it's something I maybe go back... I've got such a, a vast knowledge of things and a, and a photographic memory of growing up in that life. Something I'm fascinated with now. I love, I, I would like to do a lot more books, but I help other people to do books and obviously work with people co-writing those books because it's something I'm really, really interested in. So the movies always shows like the craze as being the top of the London they weren't, world. They weren't. They're doing the deal with the American mafia. What, no, what's no, the reality? No, no, I'll tell you the truth. And a lot of people would say all these stories about this one and that one. And I do know this, I do know the real truth. It was a Liverpool guy and he was my dad's friend. His name was Scouse Norman Johnson. They called him Scouse, that was his nickname. His name was Norman Johnson. He's got a great book called Black Eyes and Blue Blood. I'll get you the book, Sean. I've got a signed copy indoors from Norman. He was the he was one of my dad's closest friends. He he went on to her millions and millions. He was a, a bodyguard for the Princess of Oman. She ended up having an affair with him, gave him jewellery and money like you couldn't believe. This is all like this was all in the newspapers. But Norman went over to America and a guy who knocked the craze for 60 grand back in the 60s was a guy called John Francis. He ended up going over and working with Russell Buffalino of the head of the five families in New York. And Russell Buffalino was working with my dad's friend Norman. And my dad used to go over and visit Russell Buffalino. Buffalino with Norman and Russell Buffalino there is a film Joe Pesky played him in The Irishman Wow! and obviously they was involved big time they say they weren't they were involved in big time heroin 
at the time, heroin was fetching a, a, a print. But they, in the films, they say, no, they would never touch drugs. It was it was heroin. It goes back basically. to Lucky Luciano. Of course it, it does. Yeah, it yeah. was drugs. And listen, it's like Al Capone with prohibition. They were supply and demand. <laughs> heroin was a big <laughs> thing in, in New York in the 70s and 80s. And they was earning, my dad said, they used to come over with like sort of half a million pounds in a suitcase. One day they got a suitcase open. There's half a million pounds. And it all, my mum, I remember he got home to my mum. It's quite funny. We lived in a place called Keston and it was like called the Beverly Hills of Kent. If you were doing well, you lived there. We had a five-bedroom Tudor-style house. <laughs> and uh, I remember Lenny McLean dropped me off one day. We drove into the drive. We had a big, big, massive archway. And he went, fuck, you know, your dad's doing good. And he went, fuck's he up to? And uh, he, my dad came home once from New York and uh, he had a suitcase. And I remember I was just getting up to school. I passed seven. I used to get the quarter to eight bus, the 146 to school in Hayes in Kent. And my dad had stacks of like $100 bills. And my mum started counting. She was straight. My mum was like, bang, she's the counter. She's up counting on the bed. The dog's like, He's going, go do it. My dad went, oh, can you do me teach? No, you go and do it. I'm counting. So I come over at school at four o'clock and my mum was still counting. So that shows, and these are $100 notes. So, so was your mum the brain behind the brawl? She was, no, she was, she, she took care of the money, but she was also, she was like, she was the account, she was a bookkeeper by trade. So she, and she was like, she was, she used to work in the Playboy Club in, in the 60s as well. Oh, she was you. a Playboy bunny. But she told me that obviously the Playboys was the first sort of female escorts. My mum said, look, I'm not proud of this. And I, obviously I'm not, saying things which are out of term because my mum my mum confided in me but it's a, it's my story and if it goes to film one day I've been offered a lot of people coming through to me now because of these podcasts and offering me the most fantastic I mean I've had uh, a big uh, soap on TV have offered me a part a six month opportunity so just through doing those podcasts you don't realise the opportunities what come through but my mum she said most of the Playboy bunnies were escorts who used to go back with rich businessmen it was a it was a it was a, it was something sorted out financially with with the person at the club who their hostesses for that club and Victor Lowndes who used to work for Hugh Hefner was sort of he was like a pimp so to speak he would get the girls but it was all because it was all so beautiful and in a desirable location it wasn't like prostitution but it was it was they was all the bunny girls but most of them were escorts who would go off with rich clients. So there's all these stories about the crazy sexuality. Do you know the truth? Yeah, my, my dad said, my dad said, well, listen, it's everyone, I, I, you, you've got to be very careful what you say now, haven't you? But no, no, my dad said, listen, they were both a pair the start something. He said, listen, he said, they, they, that's what, my dad was old school, he, they, he didn't dress it up at how it was. But he said, that's how they were. He said, son, they weren't, he liked Reggie. He said, Ronnie, you couldn't trust, he said, because he was so dosed up on medication. He said, my dad took Mike Reed, the comedian once, to meet him. And they were sitting there and Mike Reed said something a bit silly and Ronnie went to glass him with a, like a little, uh, he was drinking brandy or whiskey, what he was drinking. And he went to glass uh, Mike Reed and my dad grabbed his wrist and Ronnie went, Jim, you're the only man who could, I'd let do that. And my dad said, well, but my dad said, son, I'm not bothered about him. I'd knock the two of them spark out. He said, but they would, he said, with Ronnie, I had to sit there and watch him all night long because he might take offence that. Where Reggie would, you know where he stood and Charlie, he said, Charlie's just a con man. He's went, but he was lovely, Charlie. He was like, Charlie was just, the he had unfortunate thing of being the older brother to them too. And he never quite lived up to what they were. But my dad fought a guy called, uh, I got the cuttings in, in my dad's book coming out. Uh, Ronnie Cray got beat and uh, Reggie Cray got beat by a guy called uh, Peter Heckman, a boxer. And my dad was, it was during World War Two, So my dad was fighting him, this guy in the ABA finals. And my dad beat him so bad in the first 50 seconds, the referee stopped the fight. And after that, because he'd beat Ronnie and Reggie, Ronnie came up to my dad and give him a bar of chocolate. And I went to my dad, it's so fucking what? I mean, they went, but you don't understand, son, this is World War Two. You couldn't get a bar of chocolate. You could, chocolate was on rations. He said, you go to the shop, maybe get half a little square. But Ronnie, just give me a bar. He said, so that was our friendship. He said, so what we used to do, they used to go on trains and they used to have like air guns. But that was telling me stories when they were kids, which no one probably knows because no one knew them at that age. But my dad said, 
and I used to get like sherbet fizz and put it in a water bottle and, and drink that out of a glass bottle. And that was like a fizzy drink. He said, but they used to go on the trains and fire their air guns at the tin signs. He said it was, and I said, they, they, fuck it. It was a bit boring, isn't it? But that's, we don't say this when we were kids, son. We didn't have what you had now. He said, you didn't have all this stuff. But then obviously that was a lifelong friendship. But my dad did say to me, when, it, when I got older and every month the films were coming at me, I said to my dad, and then Reggie would get hold of my dad's number and phone him. My dad would then change his number. Like my dad didn't talk on the phone. My dad said, I can't have it around them, son. He said, look, all these people gravitate towards them. He said, he said, but son, he said, there's there's no value around them. He said, they're like a wing mirror on the conquer. Went, what do you mean a wing mirror on the conquer? He went, but son, you played conquers. You've got two conquers. He said, why would you have a wing mirror on it? There's absolutely no purpose of having a wing mirror on a conquer. He said, with them, there's no purpose. He said, son, there's no value around them. He said, he said, but listen, that's, that's their life. They said they want to live it. But my dad was always saying, he said, son, they weren't what you would think. There was a lot of, there was a big gangster really in South London called Ronnie Olive, who was, Freddie Former mentions in his book, he was the quiet man. He was like the Russell Buffalino of the London underworld. He was a quiet man. He lived in Bermondsey. He lived in a council place all his life, but he was the main man. Forget all the other families. He was the main man. Bigger than Richardson, bigger than everyone. Ronnie Olive. And he had a brother who was deaf and dumb. His son got shot dead, Joey, by a driving school instructor. He was bullying the family. The guy went into a cafe in Mottingham in 2010, I believe, or 2009. Walked in, shot him in the back of the head, laid the gun on the table, waiting for the police to come. But he was fed up with Joe, young Joey bullying the family. Some some straight goers, it, it, it's enough's enough, isn't it? But no, Joey, Ronnie Olive never spent a day in jail, like my dad but commanded the respect for like, he died at, I think he was 84, Ronnie, but he commanded respect for all the years he was actively involved in crime. Do you think people like your dad never spent a day in jail because the craze took the heat off them? I think my dad did say they used to like, they used to love all that sort of glitz. But when my dad was, my dad had straight businesses as well. So he had a security business, which used to look after all the actors. So my dad looked after people like Tom Selleck, Richard Burton, Sophia Loren, uh, and, and big, big stars like Frank Sinatra he used to call my dad LP. And I went, what's that daddy? He went, never puncher. But they always used to drink <laughs> LPR like Lauren Perry Rose. But we used to, I remember visiting Frank with my dad in uh, Coco Cabanas in 1985. It was Christmas. And we went over there on Concord and we went over there and it was like, we went Christmas shopping my mum and sister and both had fur coats on and we went uh, to Coco Cabana's mm. and we met Frank Sinatra and his son Francis Jr and then they started scrapping the dad and the son used to have a, a horrendous relationship you know like really bad he was like a sport little brat he got kidnapped and everything didn't he so my dad ended up jumping in between them and then he ended up cutting the night short and Frank ended up meeting us in Little Italy and we had something to eat he come in pick the bill up but he was a, he was a bit of a he used to he, 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 he had he, he was a bit of a What's the word? You know, when someone's, he, he'd throw a tantrum, Frank. He, if they couldn't get their own way, they'd stamp their feet a little bit. And my dad said, he said, son, we've got to realise these people are so famous. They, they, if they can't get things their own way, they, they really have a little paddy. Mm. And it's like my dad was like a babysitter, really. But no, but meeting Frank was one of the biggest things for me as well. That's what I was going to ask, because you've met so many famous people. Well, Ray Winston yeah. used to come who, up the house. Who, who had you the most starstruck out of all of them? Do you know what I say? This is really funny. You'll probably <laughs> love this. The most starstruck out of all the stars. Remember, I've met everybody. Ray Winston. Really? Ray Winston had just done a film in 1985 with my dad called, uh, it was called Number One. It was based on and around South East London, Lewisham and Deptford. And Ray was one of the people in the film. He'd just done Scum and he was regular on Minder. Scum, he was yeah. regular on Minder with my dad because my dad used to be on Minder quite a lot because Dennis Hawkman was a friend of his. And uh, yeah, I remember me, we was at the premiere and uh, in, in Leicester mm -hmm. Square, there was Paulie Yates because she was married to Bob. Bob Geldof played the snooker player in it. And we was there, there was a, 
Alfred Molina. Do you remember Alfred Molina? Molina he played the cop, dodgy copper in it. I'll get you the film shots. It's on the internet. Number one, it's called uh, by Bob Geldof, the main guy in it. But my dad's friend, Paul, Ach- Paul, Paul Moriarty, was in it. Phil Daniels, who was in Quadrophenia. There was Alison Stedman. There was a big, big, big star calls. But he, he and Jory, for me, enjoyed it, the blockheads. Yeah, I love that. So he was in it because he had polio, didn't he? So he was like disabled in it. But, and I used to think, why is he walking in front of me? They went, no, he's, he's got a disability, son. But we was in the lift in the premiere and Paulie Yates was in it. She had really early armpits and she stunk my mum. Oh, for fuck's sake. She's like, my mom's, she's like one of those new age travellers, isn't she? My mom, fuck's sake, can someone get out of this? She stinks of B.O. And then Paulie Yates looking at me, mum, and I went, Carol, Carol, calm down. She went, no, 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 I, I can't be listening. I'll smell all that shit. And, my, and then Bob Geldof is like, my dad said he was like, Bob Geldof, he was a bit strange as well. But no, I, we had so many funny things. Growing up as a kid, we would like, honestly, coming home from school would be like, I'd be walking home from school, like you'd look outside the house or, and then to see whose cars were there and you think you go into the house like one day there was Barbara Windsor and Charlie Cray there and it was like and Diana Dawes was a good friend of the family she had done the cabaret at one of my dad's clubs in Bromley the, the talk of the county and it was like as a kid you'd think it was like amazing to go home and it was like mesmerising really I loved it so you had such a crazy upbringing did you ever have moments of quiet we used to go on holiday, but my mum and dad were, they used to play a Jewish game called Kaluki. It's like they play 13 cards and they go down in sets of, uh, and, I, and as a kid, because my dad had gambling clubs, I've never gambled since, Sean. So really, that was a good thing. I've never, ever, I, go, I play roulette, but I go with $100 or 100 quid wherever I am in, in the world and I do $100. But normally I'm really good. I mean, I've got a friend whose name was Devilfish. He was a famous poker player from Hull. And he was like, one of the, he won a million pound in the, the World Series in 99. And he died a few years ago. He was he used to love partying. He used to have to wear the dark glasses and have the knuckle duster rings with devil fish. And my uncle was a guy called Bob the Butcher. He, he was, <laughs> Bob, 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 Bob couldn't hold his hands up. He couldn't punch his way out of a wet paper bag. But he looked the part and he was like, and one day Devil Fish went, oh, you must know Bob the Butcher. I went, that's my uncle. His name's Bobby Clay. He went, oh, he's a dangerous man. I went, I went, I went, my dad, my dad went, fucking hell, Bob can't punch his way out of a fucking paper bag. Went, but Bob was like, to all these others had like made himself out to be like, he was saying he was my dad's business partner and all that, which he never was, but he was a good talker. But no, we, growing up, I've, we met some great people and I've got some fantastic friends now who I really, really love and, and they've really stood by me through thick and thin. And that's what it's about. So Charlie Cray then, what happened to him? Was he, did he get set up? Yeah, he got set up by the coppers. Funny enough, it, 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 all over 500 quid. This is what my dad, we used to call him, my dad used to go, all Charlie wants is a monkey. Like you'd be out and he'd try and tap someone up for a monkey on the, on the and you know I am like, you'd always like, try and borrow a monkey and then he'd have a monkey and that was his night's drinking to give it Charlie Big Potatoes. And uh, no, Charlie was uh, with one of my friends, actually, Bobby Gould. Uh, they got nicked and uh, Ronnie Fields. They, it wasn't like it said. They said he was the biggest coke baron. They, they'd actually, I know the story because I was away with Bob. When he come off the unit in Belmarsh, I was in there in 97 with Harry Richardson, who later went on to be done for a murder, but he got not guilty. But Harry was lovely. He was, he was like big enforcer for a few South London families. And we was all on uh, House Block 4 in Belmarsh and there was the Brinks Mac guys, uh, Tony White, who got acquitted and there was a big Johnny Short who was Bernie, but what's his name? The, the Bertie Smalls of Grass, who was, he was one of his, uh, who used to do the robberies with Bertie Smalls. And uh, we was all on there and Bobby said, he said, they'd actually bailed the gear off some people over in Surrey to, to, so Charlie, but Charlie had told these coppers so many stories, it made him look like he was fucking, had direct links to the Columbian cartel, which oh. in, in fact wasn't. He'd spoken his way into that sentence. Mm. But because of the name, he was, it was like, it was cast iron. I mean, Bob only got, Bob, Bob got six years for passing the gear over, but it was, Bob said, it was me who went and got the gear on bail. He, he was the one who deserved it. Because of Charlie's name, he got the 11 and a half what he mm. got. 
And it was like terrible. I mean, I saw Charlie in there before he went over to Parkhurst and Charlie went, oh, yeah, dad, Jim. Oh. He said, I ain't seen you here like this. And you could just see he was in his 70s. Charlie, he looked really rough. He looked ill. It was horrible because Charlie was, Charlie had never had a pound over in his life. He was, he, he looked the part. He, 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 was, he was living out his own little fantasy in life. And it, the, the Cray name took him to, to, to his grave. Mm. Even though your dad didn't do any jail, was he investigated? Yeah, lots of times. He was investigated as uh, being involved in a lot of contract killings. But my dad was one of those people, Sean, he would drive his car in the day and whatever car he had, he would take to a car cleaners, which you haven't really had, you didn't really have them, but he would go to a car cleaners. You'd always had a bottle of window leaning and kid you. I went, why are you going that car? He said, oh, Sally, if it makes you in a car, like to do, he said, because I don't want their fingerprints in a car. What do you mean? He said, well, I see a lot of people, son. So even then, Sean, he was a very clever man. He'd have his phone cards. He never used a mobile phone, never used a house phone. Someone phoned him on a house phone. He said, oh yeah, I'll see you down the other place. I said, where's the other place? Then he went, well, everyone knows where the other place is. That's where I go to Snookle. They can meet me there. Or everyone would leave a message there and they tend to meet him over at his pub. He only used the Sultan pub in Lucian or the Snookle in Lucian. And they, they know he could get him at either place. Mm. So he was very clever in that way. He would only use a payphone. the same. He never used the same payphone more than once. He would only use it. And he would use his phone cards. He used to change his cards regularly. He'd always win the ladies' winners. So if someone was in his car, he'd always like... And he was looking back... It, it, it was like he was cleaning his own evidence. Now you got all these idiots on mobile phones. Yeah, no, yeah. and he was very clever. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon, company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier. Formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Obviously through boxing, he was he was a legendary figure. So he had friends in Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, Scotland. He had friends all over. So it was, he, he would, it, he's, if people went to him, he was never involved. I know towards the end of his life, a lot of people wanted him to get involved in the drug game. I know in the 80s, they was they was quite heavily involved in in the cannabis. So, you know, like they'd have a few, where we lived in Keston, I didn't realise, we moved to a place called Keston, it's near Biggin Hill. And we was on the right, we was on a direct path to the, uh, the, the, where the beginning airport was. And a few times one day went to me, son, we, we had about seven, eight acres next to our house. And one day he went, son, do you want to have a look? Because it was full of bush. He went, son, I've got to look for something. He said, I think someone's left something here. And it was once someone had dropped it from a plane and it was a big bundle of cannabis. And my dad had given me a load of it. And, my, and I was going to, and then that's when I thought of started getting into little bits and pieces. And my dad went, oh, someone, what is it? Is it son, the puff's nothing. They, they, they don't really do that. They only smoke that. They make some happy. He said, it's not like the other game and all that. But obviously, yeah, he was involved in the, in the pop game in the 80s. I think that's how a lot of the criminals got their big money in the 80s. Mm. And we did have a very excessive, lavish lifestyle, which obviously, I don't, obviously now, 
his same inv- his same life being investigated, it would have been nicked, guaranteed. Was there ever a time when it was close, like there was a crisis, he thought he was going to get sent down? Yeah, uh, when the Brighton bombing happened in the 80s, uh, my dad's friend, a guy called Brian Whitty, he died, funny enough, a few months ago, very close family friend. He was very big in Ireland. He was an Irish guy uh, from Dublin. But because of obviously the IRA being very big at that time, all the Irish people who moved away from Ireland had to support them. Uh, they had to throw back, you know, if they made lots of money over in England, they had to throw money to their cause. It was a well-known fact. A lot of places in Kilburn, they would have collection points on a Friday. I didn't know this. My dad was used to tell me the stories. They would have, to, they would have people turn up from the RA on a Friday and you, they, these, these big businessmen or big Irish businessmen in London would have to contribute. Otherwise, they would be in serious consequences for their families back in Ireland. I didn't realise the consequences of this, Sean. And then obviously, at the time, the Brighton bombing happened. My dad's friend, Brian Whitty, had the plans and was doing the refurbishment there. So what happened was, uh, the, 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 when the Brian Bond happened, my dad was actually uh, doing, he had a security firm which used to look after people, film stars. Just just for the Americans then, so the Brighton bombing, what, what happened? So my dad got arrested for, it was ter- counter-terrorism, so they come through, my mum and dad's, we lived in Hayes in Kent at the time, we had a three-bedroom uh, semi-detached house. My mum's went to let the dogs out, the Yorkies at the back door. Next thing you know, she's got four keys in ski masks with guns. She's let them in, they've gone right through the house and everything, and... Uh, my mum, they had a hiding place in the, in the thing, but they st- stayed there all day long. My mum wasn't allowed to use the phone. Because my dad wasn't there, they couldn't, this is days before mobile phones, so they kept my mum, sh- she wasn't allowed to use the phone. They had to wait. We and my sister weren't allowed to go to school. We had to wait all day long. And, he's, and it was so, as a kid, you see this, this is why little things I suppose trigger off. My dad come over about half past eight that night. And then my mum went, my mum had managed somehow, they had a bag of money to put the money in the hiding place. And my dad's come straight, and all, and all my dad's phone books, put them in the hiding place, which was like, a, a, they had a special panel which moved in the kitchen. The police couldn't, went through the house and couldn't find it. When my dad's coming, he went, look, I'll show you how dodgy I am, I'll show you my hiding place. My mum's going, <laughs> you silly bastard. <laughs> but they didn't even want to know. But they'd obviously, they they'd obviously, because it was such a high, obviously Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, just explain to the viewers, who who was bombing who and what happened? Uh, I don't particularly, it was, it was the IRA, was wasn't it? it was, but there was a. It was because it was a political. It was a conservative party there, wasn't it? It was Lord Tebbit, Lord Tebbit, and I know Margaret Thatcher was. They there. almost got Thatcher, didn't they? Yeah, they almost got. They was after Thatcher, wasn't they, to make yeah. a political uh, stance? But was obviously, the prime, the she was the Guildford, prime minister. At the time. She was the prime minister Guildford at the time. So, that's what you know. The Guildford Free Pigeon bombing was that around the same time. I think. I well, think it was a lot of stuff to Guildford do with yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously, because yeah, of my right. dad's links with the underworld, etc., and bits and pieces, that was the closest I think that 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 had happened. Obviously, my dad, we did it. We see, we got raided five or six big raids we had at our houses, but nothing was ever taken. My dad was on bail for a bit of time. Nothing ever. I've never, never all fell apart. My dad would never say nothing. We had a great solicitor in the family called Paul Robinson at Goldcorns over in, well, he was at Woolworth Road at the time, but he went like, went on to Bromley. Nothing ever really stuck, really. So, because my dad was very, he was very, he wouldn't, he didn't put himself on offer like that. He was very, very clever at what he'd done. He, there was always, he, 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 other people would do things. He got to a stage in life where he didn't have to do anything. And how old were you at the first raid? Uh, when the Brighton Rob bombing happened, that would have been, I would have been about 13, 14. You're not scared? Yeah, of course she was, because my mum was screaming when she saw the men with the masks and they had all the machine guns, and we wasn't allowed to go to school. My mum wasn't allowed to answer the phone, because they wanted, obviously, my dad to get worried and come come straight back. So, but my dad didn't finish till half past eight that night, and he had a sink wrong with his back, he had a slip disc at the time, so he mm-hmm. so he was ringing, ringing constantly to phone my mum, say, look, fucking hell, what was, I need to, he's, he was laying out on his car at one stage, but no, they they was sort of, they were waiting for the, by the house, but my dad left at half four that morning. So they, they was there at six o'clock, and all typical, typical police raiders, normally at six o'clock in the morning, mm. well, he used to be, and they cornered off all the roads and then come through the house at, at six o'clock in the morning. 
but my mum was obviously, she was just opening the back door to let the dogs out. And then obviously they, they was stood there. Mm. So, so while he was on remand then, how did that affect you? No, he wasn't on remand. He was okay. on, they remanded because they didn't have no evidence on him, Sean. But what they wanted to do, because my dad was on the books as a security officer, mm. but because of who my dad was, they found it very hard that while this gangland legend was a security officer working for an Irishman who contributed towards the IRA and had the, uh, had the contract to, to do the refurbishment on the, on the Grand Hotel in Brighton. And obviously at that time, my dad's friend was uh, Georgie Walker, who was, he was a gangland minder for Billy Hill. He was also, he started Spud for, Spud, Spud for You in the 60s, earned loads of money and become a billionaire. Then he lost it all, went over to Russia and was working with some undesirables in Russia. And obviously with my dad's friends being these people in Brighton, and there was another guy, Nicholas Von Houtstruten, you know, the little slum landlord who, it, who was friends with Mugabe. It, they, you throw all these names into the mix and obviously the people my dad knew, it, it didn't look good. So obviously they wanted to speak to him and they considered him to be a big suspect at the time, but obviously he wasn't. And the, the Irish my dad, my dad knew, he later went on to go to prison for taking a, giving uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed a backhander at Harrods. And then he got, he got, he, Brian Whitty's name was, he got, he, he had a business called Tandata in London and gave Muhammad al fayed a backhander. Now he come on top, Muhammad al fayed grasped him straight up and he got three and a half years. Wow. But my mum looked after his family and it was quite funny. He was so skint, he lost everything. But he had a picture in his house, he bought off an old cat burglar. They sent it to Sotheby's, the picture was worth nothing, but the frame was worth £32,000. But in the days, it was just a nice little like, story. But we knew, obviously my dad was involved with Lord Bristol. The, 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 the Queen's, another qu relation of the Queen's. Mm. In so, what way? Uh, my dad's friend, a guy called Bruce Smith, he was his personal assistant. Well, he used to do everything for Lord Bristol. Lord Bristol wanted all his artworks stolen once, but they'd all, he'd already done it and, report, and, 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 and claimed on the insurance. And the artworks they went for, they had an expert there. And he said, no, these have all been replicated anyway. So, <laughs> so it was like, and he was banned on the coke and the heroin. So they had people obviously doing what they was doing. But no, it's... Uh, Bruce has gave me some great antidotes and stories for my dad's book and told me some great stories. So, What about Charles Bronson? Uh, Charlie Bronson, I mean, I've, I've, I've stayed, I, Charlie Bronson wrote to me when I was in prison because he was away with my Uncle Fred. And obviously, when I was in uh, the Wolds up in uh, uh, near York, it's in, well, near Hull, it's in a place called Bruff, I was away with Charlie's best mate called uh, Jerry Johnson. He was called Jerry the Bearing. Charlie Bronson's got a book called Legends. And funny enough, one of my friends, he, he, he shot a guy, uh, Cliff Moody, he's from Newcastle. He wrote, he messaged me yesterday on Facebook and said, how are you going, legend? One legend to another. And it's quite funny, you know, like people you met, Sean, and it's, I would like to see Cliff because we had some funny times in prison together. But no, it's, uh, I've, Charlie is another one. Is I think he's, I think he hasn't done himself any favours. I think he will remain in prison. Think I think, I think, I, I think it's another political case. I think he's got so much notoriety. I think if they let, it's like when they let Reg out. If Reg was out for three days and he died at the townhouse in Norfolk. I went to see Reg there. I was, I was, I was close with Reg, but then Reg was a fantasist. He'd spent so long in jail, Jen. He was like, he, he used to phone up and go, Jim, I've got you a world title fight. I thought, Reg, I've not even had a single fight yet. And he's like, to, to promise me a world title fight. And my dad went, listen, he's a fucking, he's, he, he wants you up there to, and then when I went on the visit with him once, he went to his wife, uh, Roberta, he went, oh, can you go and get an ice cream? And he's like, touch me leg. And I was like, yeah, there was, it wasn't quite, it wasn't the touch of the leg, like, you know, like tell my guy like that, Sean. And then he went to me on the phone that night. He went, uh, I got back really late. Uh, funny enough, I was with the uh, page three girl, Debbie Ashby. She dropped me off. And uh, we got back and then he phoned it. He went, Jim, it's Reg. Because he was deaf in one ear. He went, he went can you uh, send me a picture of you in, uh, 
some shorts. And I went, and I went, oh, what boxing shorts? My cousin was listening on the run phone. He went, uh, have you got any of you in Speedos? I thought, oh, oh, fuck. Oh. So, so my cousin went, listen, he's a fucking, he's a fucking, he's after your ass. I went, oh, oh fuck. So, and then a few weeks later, he phoned me. This was in 97. He went, Jim, can you meet a friend of mine in, in Victoria now with the craze and the name, you think? So he phoned me. His phone, his phone card went, it was three units. He said, I've only got three units left. I was on a mobile. He went, hang on a minute, I'll get another. He said, I've got 10 more units. And he went, two seconds. He said, can you meet my mate in Victoria? He's waiting for you a bit a good bit of business for you I went like that so I've gone down to Victoria and I'm thinking I, I was two stops on the train from Bromley as I got to Victoria I'm looking around I'm, I'm looking for someone like me dad in a trilby coat flat nose and, that, <laughs> and, and then I and like, right, right, Crombie in a sort of trilby hat and I've looked and this is he went you Jim I went yeah he, went, he was like a kid he was in like a tracksuit he, like, he was hanging over the end of his trainers with all holes and tears in it and he went oh, I'm Reggie's boyfriend and I went, what, what? He went, yeah, I'm Paul Marcus. He, his real name was Paul Henry. And he was Reggie's boyfriend. And he went, he went Reg said, I can come and stay with you. I went, oh, two seconds, mate. Do you mind just stay now? I walked off. Phone Reg, Reg phoned back up because I couldn't phone him because he was on the, on the phone card in prison. I went, Reg, please, what are you phone? He went, oh, wait, Jim, can he stay? I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> Put the phone down. I thought, and in the end, we made up a few weeks later. But Reg, that was him, I sort of, I listened to what my dad said. They just you. They was out to use anyone they could, Sean, make themselves look good. They was getting the charity money, but they then distributing it between themselves. There was no honour amongst thieves. Mm. Mm. And that's when I realised that everything my dad said was right. He said, son, there's no value around them. How did you meet Chet Sandu? <laughs> Shit. No, I met Shet through uh, Brian Charrington. Brian's a good friend. My Brian's dad got arrested, didn't he, with Curtis Warren years ago. Met Shet uh, at a rock star party. Yeah, Shet's a nice guy. He's great. And his book, Self Made Jews Paid. Sorry? Check it out. Check his book out, Self Made Jews Paid. Oh, he's his new one out, yeah? Yeah. yeah of no, Shet's a nice guy. Yeah, no, we, no we've only been to a few parties and that, had a few good times. He's very eccentric. Yeah. He's great. Uh, no, but listen, it's like Blink. Blink. Blink's a very good friend of mine. I like Blink. Blink's a real good friend. And obviously, have you done one with Ray Hill yet? We've done one with Ray, yeah. We're going to do a second one. Well, well Ray, Ray was because I didn't mention Ray on my, on my first one because sometimes you do, you know, when you're going along. But Ray was one of my dad's enforcers in the eighties, in the early eighties. Ray, fought, my, Ray, my dad was Ray's boxing trainer, and obviously looked after Ray. But they'd done a lot of enforcer work for the Richardsons, yeah. But Ray was a good friend of my dad's mm. and a big enforcer for him. Still pack a punch, can't he? Seventy-four years old, still. Well, he was going to fight Lenny McLean. Anyone who's going to fight Lenny McLean <laughs> can, can have a, <laughs> got to have a fight, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. But I think my dad and Roy Shaw was uh, Roy Shaw was beating uh, Ray up in the ring one day and Ray was telling me the story he said and then my dad's gone stop it stop it stop it and then Roy Shaw's like, had words with me dad and my dad went would you fucking want it and Roy sort of back my dad was one of these people once he went he was the real deal that's why his book had to be called The Real Deal yeah when did you start writing that uh, I started writing it about a year ago but I've got what it is I've got all the paperwork there I've given a lot of stuff to Julie Julie said we're going to incorporate it into like through someone else so a lot of my dad's friends would tell their stories and obviously we get factual stuff a lot of the boxing history and put it all together in a book but what I'm going to do Sean is donate all the proceeds to dementia really yeah, because my, I want, it cleans up my past it, clean, it lets people know I'm not a money grabber I don't need to I've got my own money and also I want to do my dad would have wanted to give something back and I know all the time he spent in the hospital in, 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 in the nursing home it's giving something back and that dementia is something which is very close to my heart and is it causing a lot of nostalgia? It, do you know what it is? When I hear people, I've got a lot of friends on Facebook, and you see people going through stuff with their parents with dementia. It's, uh, it's, it's very upsetting because I saw it tear my mum. My, my, it killed my mum. It did. It was five years of, it was four years of misery for my mum. And then the last, the next five years, she missed my dad terribly. They used to sit indoors, have an Indian curry. They'd go out for nice meals, go on a holiday. And she was missing her soulmate. 
and they love their dogs. And they, my dad was an animal lover. He loved dogs. And it was, I t- I've took all the best things from my mum and dad and now I'm, I'm using them rightly and putting them in the right way. Amazing. Something else you give back. There's so many people out there struggling with drug problems. Do you, know you, had, you had a heavy drug problem. Even, even, do you know what I'm saying now, Sean? I, I had a... I, I, Obviously, back in the day when I'd done it, I'd done it about yourself, but in the, in the early 90s, late 80s, it, it was clean. It was, it, was, it, was, it was still bad because drugs is bad. I was it? doing the same white doves as you. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? No, 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 91, 91. They, yeah. You had half of them. You loved the world. You would fall in. You could, fall, you could sit there and you, you just loved, you, would, you could be put in with a, a firm of you hated. And it, it was a, really, it was worth, they should, they, should give, they should give those out on the national health because it would stop all this stop trouble. Stop all, all, all these fights now, yeah. yeah. But now the drugs, I believe, got so chemicalized yep. and I believe the stuff what they're putting in the drugs is sending people crazy I mean I, I take the old bit of coke if I'm, if I'm drinking I might have a little pinch very very rare very far and few between but it's just not the same for me it's mm. I, my enjoyment is a nice bottle of wine good food and some sweets later at the end of the night my you, got, you got proper sweet tooth didn't you proper <laughs> me, 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 me and my girlfriend we went up to the, uh, Wakey Wines the other day have you seen it on TikTok the guy he, he calls himself Wakey Wines it's his, he sells these prime drinks at an extortionate price of like 30 odd quid and these cold candy but we went up there the other day and he's caught us on video and he's put us all it's got all, vi- it's got all viral everywhere my girlfriend's went thanks a lot for that fucking hell it's like <laughs> is she looking for it now like, shout out <laughs> yeah, yeah. shout out to my page yeah. so, so the people who are struggling with drug problems Jim me they're wondering how you managed to start what what do you know what information could you give do you know something i'd say go and get a nine to five job forget about these people who you're doing these drugs with go go don't don't be frightened to ask for help go and john it is it's about it's about i'm a big believer and you've got it's the people you hang around with sean if you hang around with five assholes you become the six asshole (laughs) if you hang around with five millionaires hopefully you become the six millionaire but it's about it's like it's 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 like it's being around the right people so for you when did it change from the glitz and the glamour to the dark side of drug use i think i was still used up until when my mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer and I still, I still went the odd night. But you know, I was around people. I fought with my friends, Sean, and they weren't my friends. They were using me because I was a good money getter. I would, I don't have to pay to go in a lot of places. I get, I get lapped up a lot where I go. And they know that's a, that's a, it, these aren't real people. Where my girlfriend's with me through thick and thin. She's if I have a bad day, she's there to she's there to pick me up. She's such a young girl, but she's 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 she. It's like me and my mum and dad have met again because my dad was with someone twenty years younger. <laughs> she is like she's she's the boss. She's she's the governor in our relationship, and, and, I, and did, I love it. How did you guys meet? How did we meet? We met yeah. in Mayfair a year ago on Saturday. We met at the Mayfair Hotel and we, we, she hated me. She hated me. I'd love to bring her in. She was like, she hated me. She hated me. But do you know what it is? We used to come over. She used to come over to me mum's and obviously I'd lost my mum. She was, she was so good for me. But obviously we'd go out partying and all that, but she's so grown up for her age. She was, she was, she was sort of run away from home when she was young. She's, she's fended for herself. She's right. She's hopefully going into the world of television now. She, she will be big. She's like young Anna Nicole, but a lot better looking. <laughs> Would you say, Jimmy, you're the happiest you've ever been in your life? The totally happiest, Sean. Do you know what it is? But Paige is down to that. Without Paige, if I drop dead now, I'd say she's made my life. She's she's been the she's been the cherry on top of the the cake. She's oh. made me. Oh. She's made me want to change my life. I feel so. I want to help other people as well, Sean. Now, so for me, it's about. I love Paige to bits, and we've just got this great. I just want to be with her all the time. Is that melting your heart? <laughs> it's, it's lovely, he's got an ice heart it's a lovely <laughs> no I know I'm totally madly love yeah, her do you know what I'm saying yeah. the love of a good woman it's Definitely. like what my mum said you know it's, not, it's behind every good man is a great woman it's more important Amen. than yeah. all that money Amen. and the drugs and everything else no it doesn't mean do you know what I'm saying yeah. money means nothing when you're in love because you work together as a team and it distributes itself 
mm. if you work hard, my mum always said, you work hard, it comes to you. So tell, but, us, tell us about your, your journey on YouTube because Liam Galvin is one of our cameramen. Yeah, yeah. Liam Galvin. I met Liam in uh, my girlfriend. She's going to laugh. I would love her to page. He loves to get her in. But she says to me, you look like fucking Harry Potter on that fucking interview. Because I, 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 I had like, she's laughing. She said, you look like bloody Harry Potter. You look terrible. She went, you look so much better now. She was 20 years ago. And uh, no, so I've done that. Because obviously I've got extensive like knowledge of the other one. But how, how did you and Liam connect? Yeah. We, we connected through, uh, he was with... Uh, was it? it was on a Frankie Fraser programme he was doing. And I think he, he connected me through somebody and we met up the Clink Jail in London. In London. I've done the interview. But I wasn't really... I wasn't... Because my dad said, oh, you can't be doing interviews on telly and all that. Because this was when my dad was... My dad was never one about books. And then Tony Thompson, obviously, his introduction to get me sort of a bit famous was appearing in his book, which was called Gangs, A Journey Into the Heart of British Underworld. I, on page one, it's Jimmy Tippett Jr. opens the door. So that book, 2003 catapulted me into sort of that world. Then obviously my book done really, really well. I went on to, I'd done a lot of uh, radio and obviously I'd done the, with Livy Haydock uh, on Paul Massey on his uh, uh, podcast on the Salford, he's like a Salford legend. Yeah, we've done, we've done Paul Massey's audio, but his sister. Mm. Yeah, his I, was, sister, I was on yeah. his, I was on his, yeah. uh, I, uh, with Livy Haydock, I'd done his podcast, I was featured on that. And then obviously I went on to Liquid Bullets and obviously we got nearly a million views. So you're mates with the guy behind Liquid Bullets? No, do you know what it was? I know, I know they come from my area. I see. They, but what happened was- like, Yeah, the concrete jungle. Yeah, Paul, <laughs> Paul Stockton, Paul Stockton, who was one of my dad's fighters, he was featured on with them. And obviously then Paul said to me, oh, you should, you should do a podcast, Jim, you're a good talker, you should do it. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And I saw everyone else, he's amazing, Ray all said to me, Jim, do a podcast, you'll come across really good. And then obviously, then they got hold of me a few weeks ago. I was suffering really bad with COVID. First time I've ever had COVID. During COVID lockdown, I was out partying every weekend. I was fucking enjoying myself everywhere. And I, and I actually had it really, really bad. And then he said, oh, look, I'm coming up to see you up north. And he came up and we, got, we, and we cracked on. And obviously my friend, dude, Luke, he's put a few on the, his channel on the TikTok. And they like nearly a million views. And it's mm. like, now I've had people, I've had film directors, film producers, all coming out of woodwork, all wanting, to, all, all wanting to put me in things. Would you say going on YouTube and TikTok is steering your life in a new direction? Totally. I believe social media, if you use it rightly, Sean, it, it, it's the best thing out there. 100%. But you've got to use it. Right. And obviously, you're going to get bad comments. But then I said to somebody else, if someone can spend three or four minutes to write a bad comment, you've obviously, you, that's, that's, that, you've done something right. Because if they, <laughs> I think the word, it's like with Dave Courtney, you see a lot of bad comments with Dave. But I think that's, if someone's got that, time to write that comment you're doing something right and yep. it's all of those bad comments if they're watching the trolls that send Dave's videos viral because all YouTube exactly. looks at is engagement it doesn't care if it's bad of course or it good. does yeah that's right yeah so the trolls just fuel the views for Dave of course that's good then yeah, yeah. I'm starting to enjoy the trolls now no, do you know what it is? I don't, I don't read the comments because someone said to me, don't bother reading no. the comments. Because you know what I'm saying, Sean? If they, they, you're always going to have haters, but they have, look, I just got to keep carrying on doing what I'm doing. If I if I make my girlfriend smile at the end of the day, we enjoy good food. It's all about being able to eat a good dinner at the end of the day. If you have a good food and you put your head down at night, that you, you, you've got through the day, haven't you? So you're hoping to get a film out? I've, I've been offered a few bits and pieces. I'm not me personally on my film, with my dad's film. They, they, they basically want to do a film on my dad. We've had a lot of... My dad's friend was a guy called John Daly. I don't know if you remember John Daly. He was a famous boxing bo boxing manager. He he uh, invested money in uh, The Rumble in the Jungle with uh, 
George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. Mm. He put the money up. He also put the money up for Casper the Ghost and he was a film producer and platoon. So he was, his family were really, really big in Hollywood. They, but they, he was with Richard Hemming, Hemmings. Is it Richard Hemmings? The famous film director. So they done Hemdale Film Production Company. But then he, John Daly died of a heart attack quite a few years ago. Uh, in, so what happened was the family, he's got, he's got sons and daughters. They've all now got a big studio in California. So Donald Sutherland, my dad's friend, has always said there should always be a film out with your dad because he knows stories about my dad which can be told in time. I'll maybe come back, Sean, and we'll go through these mm -hmm. but on a different subject. But no, there's a lot of stories out there which people will, I can, without implicating my parents now, can come out because they're both, they've both been a few years dead now. My mum's been dead a year. My dad's been dead like six years. And there's a lot of stories which they don't want to do a film with my dad. So obviously me being a son, we'll, we'll put that together. So we've heard all these exciting stories, Jimmy. What's your average day in your life like now? Uh, well, Paige, it's all about Paige. Whenever we arrive, we, 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 we go out for lovely meals. We've been in London all weekend. We went to Winter Wonderland. Oh, we went shopping. Good. She got her Christian Louboutins. She's, she's a self-made girl herself. She's got her own money. And uh, we went out to Gordon Ramsay's yesterday with uh, a friend of ours who's, who played, uh, he was a, he's a lead guitarist in a group called The Business. His friend Gary Bushell has got, to, obviously, paid her TV part as a glamorous assistant. So, no, we're just enjoying life and making the most of it. And you like Very living good. in the North? I, I, no, I do you know what it was. Pages in London, so now I'm now I'm back to London. I'm realizing there's no good no, there's no good restaurants in the north. In, <laughs> where, I, like where I am, you've got in Manchester Leeds, you haven't got that yeah. many. <laughs> where in London, you you're just spoilt for choice. And where sometimes when she's out with her friends, she goes, oh, she sent me. She's been in that new one in Mayfield with all the Damien Hurst uh, statues. She sent the other day. She went, oh, she was out, and I went, oh. and then you realize that there's there's so much more in London. So you're moving back. Sorry, you're moving back. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. I want to buy a house. Oh, well, I don't want to say over here. But I'm buying a house in a beautiful part of the north, which is, well, I can say it's near York and it's a beautiful place. I want to, that's where I want my, our, our main residence to be. And obviously, stay for London work purposes. I've been offered a potential job in a soap on telly with a six month uh, contract. So I've just, that's pending another screen test and uh, contracts. But no, that's looking uh, good. But it's two days a week in. Uh, Elstree Studios. Is it, is it quite a well-known soap? We yeah, very well-known soap. Yeah, I yeah. think I know what Yeah, but I can't see the NDA, so I can't. But obviously, the I can accent, say that much. I can figure yeah, so no, that's, that's, really. that, there's a part, there's a good There's a good part there. It's not It's not the best part. My girlfriend and a few friends have said, oh, you want to be careful taking a part. But then I've, I, I, it's something I would like to go in that direction. I want to, I will take every opportunity if it's straight and you get paid a, a legitimate pound note at the end of the day, I'm willing to take it. Go for it. How come you yeah. settled in Leeds? Because that's where your court cases and your no, alleged No, I had a lot of friends. Yeah, I had a lot of friends there, <laughs> and I thought no, I like it up there. And but do you know what it is now? But I'm spending more time in London now, mm. so I've got my residence there. But it's I'm I don't I'm a bit bored there, Sean. I don't go drinking. I go if I go out, I go drinking in London. I love London, but now pages as. Pulling me back to London. There's so. a lot more action in the south, isn't it? That's why I moved. Yeah, no, yeah, London's lovely. Yeah. Surrey's lovely as well. I mean, I've, I've been all over Surrey, East Show, and I lived in Brighton. Brighton was fun. Yeah. But then obviously, I, I there was a few people there, absolute wrongans there, who who set me up. Really. There was a guy called Gareth. Yeah, horrible bastard he was. He was a barber. who was an ex-criminal, but he he grasped this other guy called Buster. Who they set me up basically on this robbery, which didn't happen. But they, they they gave the police the information to get what they'd done. Basically, they got a guy to do a statement to get me recalled to jail to get me stabbed up in the jail. But when stabbed I up in the jail. No, so what happened was Sean. Yeah, when they when they grasped me, so this buster got got the guy called Eric because it's on the paperwork. I'm not saying anything out of out of school. He grasped me, done a statement, to say I went into the club with a handgun, held it to his head with a big black guy, and took sixty thousand out of the safe. But we had been involved in some business which the police knew about. We'd been pictured in Hatton Garden. 
on a certain couple of occasions where bags were swapped over. No drugs, but there was there was there was something gone on. The police knew that, but I, obviously I can't disclose that. But obviously, then they'd done a statement to say that I robbed the club on the 27th of November. But I was with a friend called Paul Anderson, who's a big property developer and a very well-known businessman in the north of England. He went round when I got arrested and got all the statements from the people we'd been with, done a statement himself, all the CCTV, so the police dropped the robbery charge. But this Gareth had notified to somebody to tell the police that I was in York on that night. So they they, they then cell-sighted my phone there. They knew where I was staying through Gareth. So he was a dirty little grass. I mean, me and Paige split up about uh, three months ago. We'd had a bit of a to do, I'd done something silly and we split up for a few weeks. He tried to message her and say all sorts of shit and tried to get into her. No. Absolute vile creature. Sure, he's the sort of person who go out and pick up a half empty bottle of beer rather than buy one himself. You know, absolute, absolute dregs of society. But these are the mugs I had around me, Sean. So now I would, I only have good people in my life now. But obviously, then I, I went back to prison for four months, but then I got a not guilty, come out on parole, served the rest of my sentence. And you said they tried but, to stab you up in there? No, they tried to. What, so, by what they done, because so, Brighton yeah. was local to them, yeah. they tried to get me in Lewis Jail to then pay some smackings to do me up. So, when I got mm. in there, Sean, I knew this was going to go on. So, I stayed down the block. I stayed down mm. and I said, no, I want to be moved out. I, I, I refused to be moved onto location. They went to me, what do you mean? So, I had to sit in front of the governor for a nicking. And I said, listen, you, you, you must know what's going on. And the governor's like, no, no, you got I said, no, but I'll tell you what, I'm refusing using a move, move me out of this jail, move me out of this jail, you can move me out of this jail, they moved me to Rochester, so I got moved to Rochester jail, uh, but then they were still trying to do things, but I'm a clever enough guy, Sean, I know what, I, prison is like, once you've got, it, it's, it's a horrible, horrible place. And there were it, two, it, sorry, they were still trying to do things. Still what? trying to send fi uh, things to put money up for me in Rochester, but when I got out, when I got, yeah, put a hit on me, that, but, but when I got out, Jen, I went back to Brighton on my own, with a pair of gloves on, which were put walk round, made myself I logged logged in on every one of the places they used to go, and they was never seen. Then the police contacted me to say that they was prosecuting them for uh, what's the word uh, when you uh, conspiracy, which uh, uh, no, perverting the course of justice. They said, "Oh, we need you to do a statement." I said, "I'm not doing a statement." They said, "What do you mean?" I went. They said, "But well, then they're going to get off of it." Scott Free. I said, "Well, you got their phones. You've, you've downloaded their phones. You know what they was doing." I said, "But I'm not going to be the same person as them." I said, "I'm better than that." I said, "Why would I help you? You knew that I was nowhere on that robbery, but you 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 were smirking at me. You took my Rolex off me. You took my ring off me because you know I was under process. You know I was under like process of crime." I said, "You you didn't help me out. So why would I want to help you?" And he said, "But they put you in jail." I said, no, you put me in jail with their help. I said, so why would I Why would I help you with them to put them in jail? I said, I said listen, I'd, he said, well, if you go down, so when I went to Brighton, this buster had contacted the police to say I was looking for him and he was in fear of his life. So that where he lived on the marina, they went and put cameras up for me. So when I was going to Brighton, so so these, these, these people, they're not, they're not hard, they're not nothing. I, I was going down Brighton regularly, I went down with Paige one day. I'm not frightened of these people. And I, I if, if push comes to strength, I'll do what I've got to do. But And when it turns around on them, they always go running to the police. Of course they do, Sean. So this is when I realise how powerful my name is. And, in, and I've got a lot of powerful friends around me who, who people don't know about who are still connected to my dad's legacy. Mm -hmm. I've got a friend of mine in Essex who's very powerful, connected to every gangster family throughout the UK. And I, know, I have meetings with him regularly. And I know that if there's a problem, I make a phone call, it's dealt with. He's, he sits down for the major family major families in the UK. And I know that I'm his, one of his favourite boys and he, and, he's, and he looks up to my dad still. Good. So, is it so, but I don't want to go down that route, Sean. I'm happy to do at a straight pound note, tell my stories and go forward in life. And hopefully you get that part on the soap. 
If I get that, do you know what it is? I've, I've literally it has been offered to me. I'm, I'm into, I've got to go back this week, and I'm involved in a Netflix uh, documentary as well with my family, which I'm meeting the producers on Friday. So it's a really exciting all through these podcasts. It's it, all kicking you off. would not believe, Sean, what what comes through to you. It opens a door, doesn't it? And just you don't know who's going to come through that but door. I've, I've got film producers, Netflix, I've, and it's like where I live is a Netflix producer, there's brain surgeons. It's a, I'm meeting people all the time, <laughs> and obviously I go up to Media City a lot. I've got friends. A friend of mine is a, the, the main producer for Coronation Street up there. The and all my friends are actors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, and obviously now I'm 51, and I'm, I'm my my confidence is booming, and I wasn't like this in my 20s, and now I feel this would be the right time for me to go into television or to do something. I would love to go into journalism as well. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers watching this, Jimmy? No, I've had a great time, Sean. I, I feel, <laughs> it's nice, very, uh, <laughs> it's a euphoric moment, isn't it? It's, it, it brings nice. It's gone like that, hasn't it? You no, know, and it's no, yeah. I've really enjoyed it. No, it's oh, nice. Yeah. This is my favourite one so far. Oh, oh thank no, you. No, I mean it. No, 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 yeah. no, because no, you, you've let me talk, but you've also guided me on a few things, yeah. You're so That's high good. energy and you're so riveting. And thank you. We're just on the edge of it. I mean, it's been almost two hours. Bloody hell, It seems like, it seems like. Paul Bellucci's like, I love it, I love it. So, so, if you've got, questions for jimmy then please put them down in the comments let us know what you thought about this podcast so the viewers jimmy they quite often like to reach out to you on your socials where yeah, are you I'm, on your I'm socials on, I'm, on tick, I'm on tiktok instagram and facebook uh, i can be contacted that way so all are just under your name are they? all under my name yeah yeah i think on tiktok it's official jimmy tippet it's official jimmy tippet on uh instagram and jimmy tippet on uh, facebook so you don't all, like people contacting you yeah, no, touch. people can contact Yeah, anyone can contact me. I'm happy to accept a message from anybody. Cool. So all of Jimmy's links will be in the description box below this video. Put questions for him in the comments. If we are, you know, if Jimmy feels like coming back and answering your questions, we will be honoured and privileged for him to do so. But we hope you've enjoyed this as much as us. Thanks Thank very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. 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 Cheers.